Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. We do what we can on this show to give you the tools, the ideas, the solutions you need to create, uh, hopefully, a leg up in life. You know, it's not enough to just listen to the news. Sometimes you need uh, to know what to do with all of this information you're getting. That is the goal of the program. Welcome to the show. When you say guide on the side, mm-hmm. the side of what? On the side of you, my dear listener. You're just like the little... I am the guide on your side. The cartoon angel devil thing on the shoulders? Uh-huh. or I'm like a shoulder angel. Which one? Are, you're the angel. Uh, I would be the okay. angel. You'd be the devil. Okay. Just checking. I wanted James to would clarify. Be, uh, what would James be? James would be the groomsman on the top of a cake. Uh, so I'm not even on their shoulder. You're a shoulderless angel. If we came with three shoulders, there'd probably be space yeah. for if you. If a human oh, yeah. was born with three shoulders, you'd definitely be on one of them. I could sit on somebody's head or something. You could be an, a head angel. <laughs> no, that's weird. Okay, fair enough. Have you seen Studio C's uh, shoulder angel? Yep. Mm-hmm. That's the funniest thing I've ever seen. Especially the one with Sean Bradley. Oh, yeah. The that one's impressive. Player. Yeah, that you can climb up that high. So if you have it, go to YouTube, look up. Studio C, uh, Shoulder Angel, and you'll see a, a great actor here from um, Studio C, which is a BYU broadcasting, BYU TV production. And this guy is an angel, dressed like an angel, and he has to climb up Sean Bradley, who's like seven, six, seven, six. He literally like, you know, shimmies up him like a, he's a telephone pole <laughs> and sits on his shoulder. It's hilarious. But he has to keep getting up and down. Oh, he has to keep switching shoulders or something. And by the time it's all over, he's an exhausted shoulder angel. It's great. Everybody needs a shoulder angel. So that's the guide on the side. I'm the shoulder angel. Okay. I just wanted clarification. You've said that. I wasn't quite sure exactly what you meant. How long have you been on the show? I know. It just I didn't really listen when you started talking. (sighs) Terry, you need to ask questions and you need to listen more. That's just what I'm saying. Hey, speaking of listening more, apparently Hillary Clinton's uh, campaign to be an ordinary person is they're, – they're driving in ordinary Iowans and they're stacking the deck. Yes. Well, of course. It's politics. It's so weird. There's not one person sitting there talking to her that isn't there that's already been vetted. They know who they are. They're not going to show up with some you know question they're not so sure that's going to happen. It's all choreographed. You think? Yes. You don't think she's just showing up? No. Interesting. Apparently yesterday she attacked huge CEO paychecks and income inequality. Yeah. Even though she's benefited from. Oh, greatly. What they, the, the article I read talked about her $22 million book advances. Yeah. That's money she received before doing anything. Which, honestly, they may not make $22 million on their book. Even if it sells a lot, yeah. the company may not make that much. But she gets that. But it gets Before she press. writes a word. Right. And it gets great press. It also the speaking fees that yeah. she's gotten. And uh, just kind of interesting that she goes, she chooses that kind of populist message of right. shaking gonna... the fist at the ivory tower when she kind of sits on one. Yeah. So she's the she's she's the queen of ivory tower right now. She's got it all. She may even get the White House again. Yeah. 
How weird would that be, honestly, to if you're Bill Clinton, to walk into the Oval Office and have your wife now be there? Like, it's her office now. So, Bill, no. get out of here. I mean, everything about that office has got to have some seriously interesting history for Hillary Clinton. Right. A lot of pain there. Yeah. She, she may remodel. <laughs> Maybe it's not a white office Tear anymore. down some walls. Make it – yeah, it's no longer going to be the Oval Office. She's going to change that. Cool. Okay, that's good news. I was talking to you before the show. Yes. Because I found this quite interesting. What? This morning, the president of the Russian Federation, I believe the official name of it is, Vladimir Putin. Vlad. Holds his annual discussion with the nation. He calls it the direct line press conference. They uh, take questions from TV guests, phone calls, social media from the people. So the, they send out TV cameras. Up. They they had people start submitting questions on Tuesday. They hit over a million rather fast, yeah. and they're just questions about the state of Russia. What is it? How's the economy, military, all that kind of stuff? Kind of the State of the Union. It's kind of like the State of the Union. But he actually talks to the people, sort of. Ish. He talks to people who ask questions for the people. So he's talked to farmers and miners. Oh, there's okay. all these pictures that are out there. So there's just common people asking questions, yeah. and apparently it's kind of funny. Really? There's some funny things How going on. How long is this? Last year went three and a half hours. I was just reading before the show. They just blew past three and a half wow. hours, and he feels like he's still going. Is and food served? Do they serve food? I don't know. Do they have a truck outside? There's all there's all these people like sitting behind. They they the set. You have uh, Putin, and then two uh, uh, interviewers, mm-hmm. TV people, sitting there talking with him. And then they're surrounded by all these this crowd of people sitting in seats and everything. And all these people, you see random people asleep. Because it's been three hours. Well, it's We're, a long meeting. So he's uh, talking about Ukraine. Yeah. Again, he denies Russian military forces were in Ukraine. Putin insists lifting a five-year embargo on the delivery of air defense missiles to Iran. He says that did not undermine international sanctions since Russia's ban was voluntary. Right, right. Everyone else, you know, it's all voluntary so we can do what we want. Yeah. Uh, he says that European nations will not be coming to Moscow to mark the 70th anniversary of the end of World War II. Because of pressure from the United States. Okay. Our, our nation told them not to go. Um, he says he was upbeat on the struggling Russian economy. He sees it, you know, turning around. It's going to turn. He says the West must respect Russia if it wants normalized diplomatic relations. And he says the U.S. doesn't need allies. They only need vassals. And he says Russia will never, never accept that role. We will not be your vassal. Other questions. A man asked for help persuading his girlfriend to marry him. Okay. And women, a woman asked Vlad's help to force her husband to allow her to get a dog. He Vlad, said, will you ha- force he said, my husband to get a dog? He said, let her have a dog. And that was the answer to the question. Well, what a great president. See, that's what's different with Obama. President Obama doesn't do this. In a way, it'd be a lot more entertaining. It's almost like a mix between State of the Union and Jerry Springer. Yes. You know what I mean? It kind of gets the Just whole- let it happen. Yeah. And then if we had like paternity tests in the middle- <laughs> <laughs> of the show and then let Vlad make the decisions. This is your f- child. This is your father. The decision, the president, the prime minister, what do they call him? President has yeah. stated it. You are now the father. <laughs> Just like Maury Povich. Harry Reid. Yes. Senator from Nevada. Majority leader of the Senate. He's stepping down. Yes, he's done. He's not going to run for another term. But like in three years, right? He Two says years. he doesn't give a hoot who wins the GOP presidential nomination because all the candidates have a singular flaw. They're all losers. <laughs> he 
He goes, I really don't care. He said on CNBC when asked who he thought would win. He was like, they're losers. He did not specify whether he meant the GOP candidates were unable to win or if he meant his insult as a more general schoolyard. This is, yeah. This disrespectful is, comment. This is the great statesman Harry Reid. <laughs> <laughs> they're losers. I don't care. You're just a bunch of losers. And uh, a mailman from Florida landed his gyrocopter in front oh, of the U.S. Yeah. Capitol on Wednesday in a surprise stunt that saw guards pull out automatic weapons before it was, he was arrested. He, uh, he goes, I'm demanding reform and declaring a voter rebellion in a manner consistent with Jefferson's description of rights in the Declaration of Independence. Doug Hughes, 61, wrote in letters addressed to each <laughs> member of Congress. As a member of Congress, you have three options. One, you may pretend corruption does not exist. Two, you may pretend to oppose corruption while you sabotage reform. And three, you may actively participate in real reform. This was on wow. the Tampa Bay Times. They okay. published the article as he took off yesterday morning and flew towards the Capitol. Apparently, he took off in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Okay. Flew 80 miles in a gyrocopter, which looks kind of like one of those riding lawnmowers yeah. with a helicopter it's attached kind of, to it. It's like a weed eater with a helicopter Yeah, it's blade. not <laughs> safe. And it, yeah. I, we, we were watching this morning. It flies like about 25 miles an hour, so you're not moving that fast. Mm-hmm. But he flew very low. And flew from Pennsylvania right into D.C. and landed on the Capitol lawn. Did he have a bunch of like a, a, a V of geese flying in? Like Could a be shape of. But see, uh, is this how you start a revolution? No. I mean, he really was just a bad updraft away from just being a story. You know, he, of he, a gyrocopter. He did say he, he was convinced that the government was not going to shoot down a guy in a toy helicopter. Well, basically. he also apparently gave him a day or two warning. Right, because he told no, the Tampa News he told, yesterday. The, the Tampa News didn't publish till the morning he took off. Oh, really? And then after he was in the air, they felt, okay, now we have to do our, our duty. And they called the Secret Service, the newspaper, and told them, hey, this is happening. Okay, But, so but they had already talked yeah. to him several months ago because yeah. he had been talking about this kind of thing on his website. So I, I guess that's the thing. So either either security is really lax, or, laxed or they knew he was coming. Either way. Because it would have been an easy thing to take down. <laughs> I don't know. And there's some question on whether it would show up on radar with well, how small it is and how low it was flying. Yeah, that's true. Unless there's different radar around the Capitol, which don't they already have like anti-air missiles around the Capitol? But they're looking for aircraft, not for a guy on a lawnmower. Not for a guy on a weed eater. <laughs> those airborne weed eaters. I knew the minute that they came out and they started marketing those. When Honda started marketing those, I knew there was going to be a problem. Interesting stuff, my friends. Man, crazy. You know, uh, that's you know, that's just the news. But how about this? Have you ever walked down the street and had somebody whistle or yell inappropriate things at you? Maybe you know, sexually harassing you on the street. Or how about just at work saying things you shouldn't say? putting you in a weird position, maybe where you feel like, hey, I think I've just been violated uh, verbally there. Well, we're going to be talking about sexual harassment, gender discrimination. Where do you draw the line? What's appropriate to say? What can't you say? It's uh, it's not um, it's not something you can just say you didn't know. Oh, I didn't know I was supposed to do that anymore. Holly Curl is going to be joining us. from. Uh, she's an adjunct professor at George Mason University. She's going to be talking to us about sexual harassment. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back with that and more right here on BYU Radio.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, it's a, it's a really it's an interesting topic. This idea of sexual harassment. You know, where do you draw the line? When is just flirting turning into something that's more inappropriate? It seems like many people can't uh, even see the line. Don't quite get it. Uh, interestingly, though, just as as I'm getting older, we are becoming a little more informed. Um, and then I, I I found out about Holly Curl, and um, she she has got an organization called Stop Street Harassment, and um, it's it's basically came out of a master's thesis, I believe. She's an adjunct professor at George Mason University, and one of her goals is to to basically stop um, gender discrimination, sexual harassment in the workplace, and also in the general public to stop street harassment. Uh, you can go to her website, Holly Curl, K-E-A-R-L dot com, to get more information. She's also the author of two books. One book is Stop Street Harassment, Making Public Places Safe and Welcoming for Women, and also 50 Stories About Stopping Street Harassers. Holly Curl, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you so much for having me. Great to have you, and uh, we need you to teach us. Teach us about uh, sexual harassment. And I mean, I, I really want to talk about it in a, in a bunch of different ways. One way, just at work, um, you know, where are the boundaries? What are the appropriate lines? But I also want to get into your, your thesis of street harassment. Is, is, did this all start for you um, in, in your master's program? Yes, uh, I have experienced a lot of harassment in public spaces myself, especially as a teenager and as a college student. And this often was just men whistling or yelling at me from their cars, um, especially as a a runner. I'm a long-distance runner. Mm. But it's also included being followed, flashed. I've even been groped on the street um, by, by men. And, you know, had men make really sexually explicit comments. And I didn't know how to deal with it or, or what was really happening um, until I was looking up a topic for my master's thesis and came across that term street harassment and immediately recognized the stories for the stories I was experiencing. Um, so, that yeah, that's where I got started. And I worked for a number of years at the American Association of University Women also for six years, and I did a lot of work around workplace sexual harassment, harassment in schools and on campuses. Mm. What, 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 is this a really, is this more of a big city phenomenon, the street harassment? In my city, I don't, maybe it's just, I'm not, no one ever is whistling or yelling at me, but is it, is this a big city phenomenon? Or is it everywhere? No. Yeah, it happens everywhere, it? And, and not only across the U.S., but globally. Yeah. And um, you, uh, um, as a man, you probably don't see it happen very often. It tends to happen to, it's mostly happening to women or men who, um, you know, are effeminate or who are outside the gender norms for mm. men. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's often done in a way that the harasser can get away with it, right? So they do it when the harassed person is alone or they do it quietly. Um, so it is, it is often invisible to people who aren't harassed, which is why it's so wonderful that we have things like social media that's allowing us to tell our stories and make it visible to the larger public. Well, and, and, to, um, and but, get, to get the message out there, right, to get to educate people that mm-hmm. didn't even know it was going on to this degree. Right. But I have to say, I've, I've been to Utah a number of times, and I have been harassed there. Have you? Um, one of the, yep, I was, uh, one of the, one example, I was at a gas station near the airport, um, just filling up gas, and 
uh, it was like as soon as I walked into the gas station, all these men started leering at mm. me. And, um, and I can't even remember. One of them said something that I felt was inappropriate. Um, and, but I've been harassed just running on the streets, yeah. um, you know, in, in different parts of Utah. And I've been in very rural areas in the country. Um, but you do see it more in the cities because you are encountering people that you don't know more often. And so it does tend to happen between strangers. Um, and then there's just so many people that, you, you know, higher chance that you're going to get harassed yeah, sure. just encountering more people. Well, and I mean, you always kind of, you know, equate it to the construction worker who's like five stories up or whatever and can, like you said, get away with it and it take an easy shot at somebody. But there, there was that YouTube video that uh, was um, that went viral. I don't know if you saw it of somebody videotaping. Uh, every a, a woman would walk through a city, and every they would videotape how people would look at her, and she was wearing tighter fitting clothing, and then they would just continually videotape how all of these men would look at her inappropriately, and that there that very concept of just how you're being looked at can also be harassing. Right. Um, there was a study that was just done oh, that came out a few months ago um, that said. You know, if, if women are sexually objectified, including, you know, being leered at or harassed in public spaces, it increases the chances that they are going to feel um, afraid for their safety, whether that's physical or fearing uh, sexual assault. Mm. Um, so it has a very real impact on women, even if men don't realize that it does. Yeah. And so it really define for us then what really constitutes harassment. Part of it would be. I mean, I guess, objectifying, sexually objectifying, leering. What else is sexual harassment? Right. Well, sexual harassment really comes down to a lack of consent and respect. Um, Because obviously people do flirt and do meet each other and, you know, can have wonderful interactions. But um, I think those, those happen when both people want to be in that conversation. Both people are okay with it. And sexual harassment is when one person isn't okay with it. Um, and, uh, you know, when it comes to public spaces, a lot of times we're not even given that option. If men are yelling at us, at yeah. objects, we don't even have the chance to say whether we want to be part of that interaction or not. Right. Um, so it, it really does come down to the consent aspect of it and just showing someone respect. Um, you know, sometimes men will say, well, you know, how else am I supposed to you know, tell a woman I like her if I don't whistle at her? Uh. I'm like, well, talk to her like a human being and just say, hello, how are you? Right. <laughs> Well, and, and, and just respect. Smile. Yeah, well, respect that maybe it's not about a, a woman's looks. I mean, maybe, I don't know, it's just, it, to me that seems so foreign to just s- to say to somebody that I think is beautiful, you're beautiful, and yell that across the street. I mean, that's right. so, I don't know. You don't know the person. You know nothing about, you're just objectifying. Right, exactly. The, the, um, the consent is important, right? I mean, yeah. it's it's engagement. Yeah. We've got to be engaged in order to... To, to have this type of a relationship where we can talk about that. Right. Um, and, and, you know, street harassment and sexual harassment in the workplace and schools is happening in a larger context of inequality for women, where we don't see women, um, you know, there aren't very many women in Congress. It's only about 20% women in Congress. There are very few women who are CEOs, very few women leading media. And so this is sort of the context that it's happening within where, Women are being told over and over, your value is your look, um, and it's our right to objectify you, and that it's not about your, you know, your intellect. Yeah. Does, um, and, okay, I don't I didn't know I was going to ask you this, so here's a little curveball for you. <laughs> uh, 
okay. Vice President Biden just got some pretty interesting press for massaging the shoulders of his new defense secretary's her his the defense secretary's spouse. He's just you know at the swearing in process. He just puts his hands on her shoulders and is touching her. And, you know, it created a big hullabaloo about you don't just go touching on somebody. Um, How do you draw the line? Yeah, that was. Do you remember that? that He did that. Uh Uh-huh. And I, you know, and I remember um, President Bush did that to Angela Uh Merkel. I know. We talked about that as well. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Uh, she gave him a a stink eye that was incredible. (laughs) She, like, raised her hands and was like, ah! Yeah, do you remember? Like, Um, do not touch me. Yeah. And, and that um, Joe Biden's uh, touchy-feely moment yeah. it inspired a Tumblr about, you know, men touching women inappropriately. And just I think it gets down to this concept of women's bodies are not public spaces, but they are treated like that. Mm. Whether it's a, a pregnant woman where people will feel okay to touch her <laughs> stomach or, yeah. um, you know, I hear from black women that other people will try to touch their hair. Oh, wow. Like white people will try to yeah. touch their hair. Um, you know, so it goes beyond just even what we think of as like street harassment, but it's these ways that women's bodies are seen as um, available to be touched or commented on. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, I think we just need to respect each other's personal space and recognize that it's not okay to touch someone without asking. <laughs> um, you know, there are especially there are a lot of survivors of sexual assault in the country, and for them, it can really feel re-triggering and upsetting to be touched or objectified. Oh, yeah. Well, and again, I think it goes back to your two basic principles, consent and respect. And again, Mm -hmm. and and we'll take a break right now, though, Holly, but I think a lot of this, too, might just come back to some people just seem to not get space and to not get boundaries and to not quite get it. So I'm dying to figure out how we can instill that into people. I mean, even that are good people that just don't get it. Um, and maybe some of that is just to be a little more punitive about it. We'll, we'll talk about it. We're talking with Holly Curl. Um, she is uh, the author. and She's an adjunct professor at George Mason University and the author of the book Stop Street Harassment. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back after this break. To the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, right now on the show, we're talking about sexual harassment. What are the lines? How do you uh, how do you respect somebody um, and make sure that you don't just see them as this object? That you don't just look at somebody that's beautiful and then I guess have to comment. Oh, I've got to tell you, you're gorgeous. Holy cow! I mean, there's some things we can, you can think someone's lovely and beautiful and you don't need to whistle. And yet so many people are, are still doing it, folks. You know, we don't, we just need to treat each other better than that. See each other as more than that. Joining us is Holly Curl. Holly has a website 
um, on Stop Street Harassment and uh, is an adjunct professor at George Mason University. She wrote the book, Stop Street Harassment, Making Public Places Safe and Welcoming for Women. Also, 50 Stories About Stopping Street Harassers, uh, which uh, came from a master's thesis that she did. And she's here to teach us more about um, sexual harassment and then um, just kind of harassment in, in, in general, gender discrimination as well. Holly Curl, thank you for joining us again. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate what we're learning. Uh, teach us some more. So w- when we're sitting at work and if – I mean I guess it's normal. It's natural to find somebody attractive. It's, it's a whole different ball game to act on it, to say something or to start to push that onto somebody. Is that the difference between harassment yeah. and just – you know, adoring somebody, thinking somebody's great. Yes, exactly. And and I think there's nothing wrong with paying someone a compliment about who they are, something about them. Like you did a really good job mm-hmm. on that presentation. Word. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, like something about who they are rather than what they look like. And uh, according to the last segment, keep your hands off their belly if they're pregnant, their hair <laughs> if they if they uh, if they have interesting hair or whatever. I mean. But it really is. It's almost like we get in this weird space where we break all the rules and we just got to touch him. And, and then, there, like you said earlier, there just are people that are touchier, but know your boundaries, right? Right. And I think it's, it's um, you know, if you're a person who likes to give hugs or touch people, um, you know, just ask. And that's something, you know, I like to give a hug if I, you know, if I'm meeting someone that I... I often get to meet someone in real life that I've been communicating with online for a while, and that's always such a pleasure that I always say, is it okay if I give you a hug? Sometimes people have a real, you know, a discomfort with it. Mm -hmm. Maybe they, you know, have anxiety. You you just don't know what they have going on for them. So it's always good to just ask. And a history of abuse. If they've been abused, Mm -hmm. I mean, a a, a touch that is um, unintended or unexpected, it could be shocking. It could be jarring. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it could. Yeah, it really could have a huge impact that the person giving the hug or touching had no intention of. Talk, talk to us about some other things. What else don't we know? Like, I mean, I think a lot of times it's it's probably men that are maybe sexually discriminating against women or sexually harassing women. That's probably statistically more of the norm. What else do we need mm-hmm. to know and be aware of just maybe as people, as guys, or just people mm-hmm. in general in our workplace? What else should we be looking out for? Um, well, I think that it, looking out for a joke that could come across as offensive. Um, I know it, it's, not uncommon for people to make jokes around domestic violence or rape um, or, you know, these really serious things or, um, oh, they played like a girl, you know, putting down someone because of their gender in that way. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, you know, we, we have to be more aware and sensitive of our words, even if it's not directed at a person. Um, if they're said near a person, it can impact them. Um, I want to just quickly illustrate this. I have a cousin who is this amazing um athlete she's like six feet tall and she trained really hard to become a hot shot with you know fighting fire yeah yeah um and she's you know one of it's very there aren't that many women uh-uh. who are part of it and she trained really hard and so she was part of this crew this was about two summers ago and it was her dream job and at the end of the summer she decided not to come back and one of the biggest reasons was because the men weren't saying anything to her directly but they were saying a lot of um, 
making a lot of sexist jokes and sexual put-downs in yeah. general, yeah. and it made her feel really uncomfortable. And they would be in isolated places without cell reception, sure. and she felt unsafe. And so even though it was her dream job and she succeeded in getting into this male-dominated field, she left it, and it broke my heart. Oh, that, see, that's, again, because they are. They're like in the middle of some western mountain range sleeping in a tent. <laughs> fighting fires 18 hours a day or 20 hours a day or whatever but she was probably also adopted into the being one of the guys do you think but but in the end it didn't mm-hmm. the guys shouldn't be talking like that right and so it's isn't that a weird dynamic i i know i know uh, quite a few of these and women as well and she's they they all say it's strange because you're sharing the same facilities but it mm-hmm. sounds like what was getting your cousin holly was more the language and the just the right. c- consistent put down. Right. And and that is pretty common in male dominated fields. You know, we're trying to get more women into like the science and technology fields mm-hmm. and something like firefighting. Um, but yeah, there is sort of this mentality of, of it's a male space and we can say these sexist things and ha ha ha. Yeah. Um, and when women enter them, yeah, they are either like not, they aren't maybe targeted and they are seen as like one of the guys, but for them, those, those comments still affect oh. them. Oh, absolutely. Um, so, that, yeah, it's a challenge. Well, and it's because, too, it almost just opens up for your cousin and for anybody that's in that. This Is this how men think? Is this mm-hmm. is this what they see me as? And that's got to be right. jarring. Right. Is, but um, I think for a lot of men, it's, you know, they're putting on, uh, they feel forced to act that way because there are a lot of pressure there's a lot of pressure to um, to be, quote-unquote, be a man. And, and sometimes that means, like, being aggressive, not showing emotion, telling these jokes to kind of cover their emotional side. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really, I think um, we need to do a lot to redefine masculinity in our society and say it's okay to be nice and to be sensitive. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do you, uh, do you have ideas on this? So if I am in a situation and um, we're talking and it seems like, even if it's just me and a bunch of guys, and mm-hmm. somebody seems to cross the line. How do I go about, you know, standing up, trying to correct the view, and um, and I guess still, you know, remain a part of the group? Is mm-hmm. there a way to do that? Yeah. So it depends on you know who who's how close you are to the to the person and what the group dynamics are. So certainly you don't want to alienate yourself. Right. Um, so there can be ways of, you know, just taking the person aside and not making it a big thing in front of everyone else. So it's not embarrassing or, you know, there's not as high risk for them where they may feel like they have to lash out to save face. So just taking them aside and being like, hey, you know, when you said that, I felt really uncomfortable because of X, Y, Z. And you can put it on you. Say, I felt uncomfortable instead of being like, you're a bad person. Yeah. yeah. Right. So that they feel less defensive and less attacked. Yeah. So just explain why. Um, but sometimes, you know, if it's, if it's someone you feel really close and comfortable with, sometimes just being like, hey, that's not cool. Or, yo, what, you know, why are you saying that? Like, think about what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Is, is that really what you mean? Um, sometimes bringing in, you know, family members into it by saying like, hey, would you really want that said about your sister or your mom? Like, why are you saying it about anyone else? Yeah. Um, and sometimes if it's, if, you know, if it looks like the person is about to harass someone, you can do some of those tactics, but also distraction or interruption can be um, a low key, like it won't escalate right. necessarily, you know, to, to 
the backlash against you. So just creating interruption or distraction yeah. and redirecting their attention. Change the else. subject. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that's one of the great things of conversation is make a joke, change the subject, get out mm-hmm. of the situation, and then circle back and bring the guy in or the friend in and say, dude, you just can't say that. If if that was right. my daughter, that's one of the things I'm learning is just being a dad with a 20-something daughter, I I see it differently. I'm like, don't mm-hmm. you don't say that. If my if somebody said that about my daughter, I'd I'd come unglued. And then right. maybe and maybe too we need to stand up too, right? So if we do see overt um, you know, action and activity, even a guy whistling at you at a store, just to have mm-hmm. some guy say, Come on, show some respect. I mean, just to have somebody stand up might create at least some feedback for that jerk. Absolutely. And I think it's so powerful when men do that. Um, I just spoke at NYU last week and I sent them ahead of time. I sent the, it was a, sorry, it was a campus safety officer who is male who invited me. Hmm. And I sent him a video that I wanted to play. And in it, it's men talking to other men about what they could, you know, uh, about harassment and saying, Hey, you know, that's not cool. Why are you doing that? It's harassment, just things you could say. And so he watched it ahead of time, and he shared with um, us in the room at the talk that he had, he had actually started using those tactics himself. And he had seen um, the, the stereotype of a construction worker, which is, of course, beyond that. But it, in this right. case, it was a construction worker. And he noticed that he was harassing a lot of women walking by. So when this NYU person came up to him, he did say, dude, why are you doing that? Has that ever worked for you? <laughs> and the guy got embarrassed and walked away. He there stopped doing it. Yeah. So I was like, yes, perfect. <laughs> See, isn't that interesting? I mean, d- dude, does that work for you? As as opposed to defending a woman's honor, seems like it would work a lot better instead of, you know, destroying their honor with, you know, with your eyes or with just your language. But I guess that's part of the problem. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it on the show, because my concern is some of the groups of people that need to learn this that might be maybe in more male type of dominated workplaces that this Mm -hmm. is maybe more the norm. They're not going to hear some of this dialogue. And 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 so what I see is we have kind of a kinder, gentler group that might be more informed. They might be more understanding to the need, not perfect at it, still leering, Mm -hmm. you know, but, but then there's others that aren't hearing it. Um, Are there other ways that you've just found in your work that we can, we can bring it up more? We can focus on it more. We can teach our children. I mean, I talk to my kids about stuff like this, but how else do we, how else do we do it? How else do we stop it? Stop this idea that women are just this object to be just adored. Yeah. Well, um, I think talking to youth is, is the number one thing, so talking to your children, talking to neighborhood kids, like whoever you have a chance to talk to, just generally about respect and consent is so, so important. Um, and we're starting to see more groups working on these issues, especially with boys, um, around issues of masculinity and, and how to stand up. For example, there's a group, Men Can Stop Rape. And they have men of strength clubs in middle schools and high schools and college campuses in, in many cities across the country. And um, they talk to them about, you know, what does it mean to be a man? How can we be respectful men as we grow up? And how can we interrupt instances of harassment or assault? Um, so we absolutely need more, more of that. Um, a challenging media is another thing that we can all do. Um, stop street harassment. 
periodically we'll have campaigns against companies that are trivializing street harassment and portraying it as a joke in their commercials or even on product labels. There have been cosmetic companies that'll basically be like, you know, encourage it, like, don't you want to get whistled out on the street? <laughs> on oh, the man. <laughs> I know. And we're like, uh, who, who approved that? Like, See, the ladies terrible. like that. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And so those messages, you know, th- that's what you see and absorb. And so they, it's no wonder that sometimes they get mixed messages about how they're supposed to act. Hmm. So um, there's, you can always check out the Stop Street Crescent site and see what petitions we have going on. And we've had some success at getting companies to pull ads in the past. Um, so that's, that's it, huh? Way. Wait, so yeah. that if they go to stopstreetharassment.org, that's the organization mm-hmm. you've you've started. That's really, I yep. guess, more of training about the the harassment in public places. Right. That that's fantastic, and um, there's a lot of great resources there. So I highly recommend that. Plus, just your website. Um, just go to hollycurl.com. But Holly, as we wrap this up. Um, we have just about a minute left. Talk to me. Give us give us a tool. So if, if I had to remember one thing about mm-hmm. an interview with Holly Curl and sexual harassment, what's the one thing that I need to make sure I, I kind of plant in my heart? Yeah, well, I, I think for men, listen to women and understand their stories. Don't victim blame them. Be compassionate. And for women to share your stories. I think that the more we can understand this issue, the more likely we are to care about it and to feel compelled to speak up. Mm. And if men would listen, women would share. And if women would share and men could listen, we change the world. Mm-hmm. Yep. Exactly. Powerful. Holly Curl, we appreciate you uh, and the great work you're doing. Keep it up and uh, we'll keep pushing men to listen more and women to share more. Uh, great, great insight. Holly Curl again. Go to her website, hollycurl.com. Learn more about, uh, you know, take your part here. Step up, teach your children, defend your uh, circle of influence. Let's uh, let's stop harassment right now where we can. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. We'll be right back talking about this more right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We've been talking about uh, sexual harassment we had on Holly Curl, um, who, you know, has done a master's thesis on it and is teaching about stopping street harassment. If you go to her website, stopstreetharassment.org. You know, it's interesting. Um, I walk down the street, and I'm never whistled at. And I'm glad. But I sit there and I think, man, women go through that. And she's like, not even just that. They go through groping, leering, people stalking them, flashing, all of these different things. That video you talked about of the woman walking around New York. Yeah. Did you, do you remember that? And and I – at first, you're like, I think maybe – honestly, before that, I thought people are just being a little sensitive. Yeah. Right? Then you watch the video and you're like – Seriously, people say that? Because really? I, I wouldn't imagine saying that to somebody right. in public. No. Right? I was telling you in the break, I whistle at my wife. Yeah. Right? But that's messing. I'm, like, I'm messing around. It's a joke. Bring me a drink. No, I, you know, you do like the wolf whistle thing yeah. and she just looks at you and rolls her eyes and leaves. But there's consent yeah. there because she knows I'm doing it 
as you know, kind of like humor and it's kind of a joke, no problem. But I'm not doing it in a in a in a sense where it's like some creepy guy on the corner and yeah. I see you just walk by and I whistle at you. It just seems kind of odd like, that someone would think that's an okay thing. Can to you do. imagine though your wife walking to on campus and having somebody whistle at her or say something? I mean, overtly like, "Hey, mama." Yeah, that would that wouldn't sit well. No, but if I was there, they wouldn't do it. Or would they? I just think some guys are just They don't dumb. care. Well, and, and we talked about the fact – I lived in Argentina for two years. James lived in Brazil. I don't know if you say it that way in Brazil. Yeah, okay, Brazil. I just said it that way. Um, it's kind of – it's very common there and it's, it's almost part of the culture. It's a little bit of the machismo and they'll like make little clicking sounds and noises and it's a weird play. But we're not in Brazil anymore. <laughs> you know, Dorothy – you're not in Kansas. But so some of it's cultural, except again, it's still such a violation. If my wife, if we went to Brazil and they did that to my wife in Brazil, I'd still feel like that's just wrong, you know? So how do you break culture? Some of it's culture. And some of it, I think, is just ignorancy. People are just flat out ignorant, they don't get it. And some of it's just they need to be popped. Well, when they ask, how else am I supposed to compliment you? Well, don't. Yeah, shut your mouth. You're not. <laughs> That's right. Just take it in, brother. Just take it in and walk away. Um, there's some other YouTubers. Cause so what that – I think the one video was a, a woman in like her yoga clothes, yoga pants, walking through New York. It wasn't even that. It was a pair of jeans and a T-shirt. Oh, was that it? Yeah. There, there was one where they were in yoga pants and everyone was checking them out. And they, they literally like stop, turn, gawk. And and look, so a guy uh, set up a video camera outside of <laughs> it's hilarious outside of Walmart. He put on his wife's like yoga pants, and he was leaning in his truck. And people, guys, would walk by and they would just leer and leer, and they just keep looking and looking. And then he'd <laughs> pull up and turn with like this big manly facial hair, and he'd say, "Dude, are you looking at me?" Were you looking at me, man? And this guy, these people would freak out and they caught a bunch of them. And if we could do that to every person that's out there leering, we'd, we'd probably have half the population, A. Break the habit? Yeah. I think it's normal to notice something that's beautiful and lovely. It's another thing to have to comment on it. It's another thing to go above and beyond, you know, appropriate by gawking and – Making offensive comments yeah. or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I mean, every time James walks into the office, he's usually about got seven, nine, 12 minutes, 15 minutes to show time. So he's always running. But I always whistle. Is that disrespectful? Do you feel consent? I d- well, you, you've never given me, I've never asked you, can I whistle at you? Yeah, you've never asked me that. So I do kind of feel like a piece of meat sometimes <laughs> when I do that. Yeah. Okay, I won't do that anymore. Okay. But I mean, the, that's bad. I saw maybe I should stop wearing yoga pants to work. Well, yeah, and the yoga pants you got to stop. The, the overall <laughs> thing is, is when a, a man does that, they're putting themselves in this like position where they they somehow have power over that, yeah. that woman. Like, oh, I can compliment you, and you just have to deal with it, or I can make this. I mean, some of the comments are just obscene. Oh yeah, and it's okay because I'm complimenting you. You should go ahead and accept that. Yeah, you know, like well, the, you the woman has no choice, right? Well, see, and imagine that you've been in, a, in an oppressive relationship where you have not had power and control, and then some guy whistles and kind of immediately puts you in that position again. It's going gonna, it's gonna to start up a whole new set of concerns and fears. And 
again, in my office, how much, how much does somebody have to take? So if you're really, honestly, some of the most incredibly beautiful humans I've ever met on earth are the most messed up humans I know. And part of it is because their whole identity has been skewed because of their beauty. So everything about them is about how beautiful they are. And then you go on the street and the people just keep reinforcing. It's just pretty much about your body. It's about your body. So, man, how much should one person have to take? And they can't fight back. I mean, how do you fight back? I guess you could be a jerk to each person. But then, then your walk to work is pretty much ruined if you're in New York or wherever. It's just crazy. Again, it's it's a problem that – you know, I don't know if it's you're going to have uh, a very viable, electable presidential candidate that's a female who's supposedly going to be fighting against this, and but she's still going to be asked questions that the average male won't be asked. And then, yet, what was it yesterday? A uh, CEO of a marketing company in Texas, a woman, yeah, came out and said that a woman should not be president because we have different hormones. Oh my word! The woman We're runs a company. She's in a power, a, a position of power in her own life. Right. But in her mind, you can't be president because you have hormones. Well, but yeah. she was Secretary of State. I know. She's. We have presidents of universities. We have presidents of. Well, GM. She, says, she says women can be in every walk of life, but president because of hormones, we can't do that. Oh my heavens. And you're just waiting for her to say because she'll have her finger on that button well, yeah. to launch the missiles and she has a bad day. But like, you know what? What are you talking about? She also has hormones that might make her a better communicator, might make her a better team builder, might make her a better leader. Yeah. I mean, okay, she maybe she you know, won't go into war and decapitate somebody and gut them. I don't know. What the heck does hormones have to do with it? But it We're just still it, making that argument? That's Well, crazy. it was interesting that it was a, know, a female yeah. no, CEO that was doing this, so – we got to get some information out there. I mean, we all, I mean, you should see James has his hormones. And we're figuring out ways to make that work here. Yeah. We let him run the board. Right. He's part of the show, but he's, you know, it's just hormones. Relax. Holy cow, folks. It's, it's bad when women are beating up on women, <laughs> let alone the men are making it hard. Come on, folks. Let's make it better for everybody. Let's start seeing people as humans, okay? Not just body parts. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to take a break, come back after the news with more ideas, more tools right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I am your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program where we give you the tools, the ideas, the skills you need to, uh, you know, create a healthier, happier life. Our goal is to help you see the good in the world, not just to learn the news. That's, you know, one thing we'll provide you or some updates, but also to uh, give you some tools to know what to do with all this information. Uh, especially how to make your families better, your life better, your psyche better, uh, and to make you a better leader just in the world. This, uh, you know, that's our goal. Welcome to the program. Hey, uh, interesting stuff. This morning we've already talked about sexual harassment. 
We've done a little YouTube searching as well. Just some great lessons on don't be looking at people. Don't objectify people and just think you should say something because somebody looks pretty. Try to validate somebody's skills, their gifts, their work. Don't just validate their looks. Anyway, but that seems to be the world we're living in. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about, in this next hour, um, depression, anxiety. There's a lot of meds out there. A lot of people are on antidepressants. And uh, there's a really weird disconnect between what we're learning in the media causes depression and what the actual scientific research shows. And we may be being greatly influenced by, you know, media to go buy medicine where there might be some other solutions. So we have two doctors that will be coming uh, on the show in a bit to join us and, and to talk about that. Um, but before we do that, we always like to get to the head, headlines that maybe some of these headlines may be the actual cause of depression. Could be. Could be. We talked, we talked before about the Clinton Foundation. Yes. And how that would be something that, that Hillary Clinton needs to address. Yeah. And her relationship, like a, how... A bill, now how much was it? A billion dollars of money, two, something like $2 billion of money raised for the Clinton Foundation. Yes. From foreign investors. Well... They, obviously to donate to charitable causes, right. but yeah. the idea that her foundation takes money in from other countries, are they somehow currying favor? Well, and, and for some of the time, she was Secretary of State. During this time, yeah. yes. According to a summary of the Clinton Foundation's new policy, the organization will still accept donations from foreign governments, even though Hillary is running for president. Now, that's interesting because it, let's say she wins. Do they just put the foundation on hold? Because you can't have the first or she separa- Or she separates from. Well, she can be separate all she wants, but the yeah. first lady can't be accepting first money. dude. No, I'm saying, yeah, but like we couldn't have uh, – <laughs> we couldn't have – Michelle yeah. Obama receiving money you still from have Saudi Arabia. Influence in the White House when you have right. the husband says donations from Australia, Canada, Germany, the Netherlands, Norway, and the UK are permitted, while other countries are prohibited from making large donations. Mm. They can still participate in the Clinton Global Initiative, which comes with an, in, an attendance fee of twenty thousand dollars. Okay, here's the. This is what I think is the the. I think Hillary Clinton has an incredible shot at becoming the next president. If something's going to pull her down, it's going to be what I just call the Clinton funk because with every Clinton issue, there tends to be a really long explanation. Yes. and They're, they're trying to balance a gray area uh-huh. instead of just making it a, a clean break. Yeah. And, and so as the minute you're in here, that, you're going to get gray. The Wall Street Journal notes that the new policy is meant to strike a balance between protecting existing programs yeah. while shielding the foundation and Mr. Cl- Mrs. Clinton from charges – uh, that foreign governments are buying influence through their donations. The huh. best way to do that is just to break and yeah. have a clean a clean break from yeah. those donations, but they're still going to take them because they have these other programs they want to yeah. continue funding. It's hard because she's also – the Clinton Foundation is helping a lot of people, a lot of women in a lot of different countries and a lot of health issues and a lot of – it's helpful. You just can't mix money and – political leadership. Makes so it tough. watch out for the Clinton funk because anytime there's an explanation that's longer than, yeah, you're right. I'm bad. I shouldn't do that. I'm done. I won't do that anymore. Here's all the data you need. Anything other than that, it's going to just be a problem. Problems. The president of Iran on Wednesday threw cold water on the compromise legislation advanced one day prior in the Senate that would give Congress a say in any final nuclear deal. 
He says, we declare to you that we are not negotiating with the U.S. Senate or the House of Representatives. The party we are negotiating with is called the P5 plus one group. Okay. Right? So they're negotiating with Germany and Mm -hmm. U.K. and all these other countries, not just the United States. Right. But if you watch our news, it sounds like they're negotiating directly with us. Yeah. And that's not the case. So, and you see, you know, Congress sending letters to the president of Iran and we're not negotiating. It's not yeah. us and them. It's it's them and six countries. Yeah, six other countries and us and and our Senate and our Congress. Well, I tend to th- – <laughs> they think they can inject themselves yeah. into this negotiation. Look how complicated it's this interesting. is. Yeah, this is, why, this is why these things don't tend to work. That's why they responded to that letter that was sent when they just went, this is ridiculous. What are we talking about? Right, right. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. Uh, Chris Christie. Yes. He's been in New Hampshire the last few days. wonder what he's doing there. He's trying to get people to like him. I think they have some um, really good fried macaroni and cheese. That could be oh, the case. I love that. Over the last few days, in, he's been uh, in New Hampshire, proposed that when he, he is president, he will cut Social Security benefits. He would trim them, the payments for anyone earning over 80000 a year and end payments for anyone earning over 200000 or more a year. Yeah. Wow. So these people are paying into a fund, and he's going to cut them out of it. Yeah. Mm. You know what? He he goes on. He says he'll enforce drug laws in states where they're selling marijuana is legal. So he'll go in and make arrests and stop the sale of marijuana. It's legal in the state, but not legal federally. He's going to go in and enforce those laws. He also says parents can't count on him to support opting out of vaccines for their children. They can't count on him for... So he's, ag- he's against parents having the option of not. See, I wonder how a lot of this is going to fly in New Hampshire. Well, you have uh, the uh, the older set of people who are all they're going to hear is he's cutting Social Security. Yeah. They're not going to listen to the money amounts. They're going to say, you're messing with Social Security. We earned that. The same side, he's talking about uh, going after marijuana and the 18 to 34 in the polls, they don't seem to care too much about enforcing those laws. Right. Because either they participate or they don't think it's that big of a deal, you know, Chris, in, including young Republicans. They don't see it as a big deal. So Chris Christie needs to get in the race, though, because. Well, if he continues this way, he's going to sabotage it before he starts. Well, sure. But even even if he sabotages it, if we can get Chris Christie in the race with 20 other Republicans and he's not you know, there to beat up the Republicans, but instead you use all of his energy to go beat up Hillary. He's a good fighter. This guy's a good fighter, though. I think he may have a too hot a temper. Yeah. Well, yeah, to be president, maybe. To be elected. Well, and he's got about five other scandals he's got brewing. But, you know, he's a good fighter. Sometimes you need a good fighter in the race. Interesting things coming out of the U.K. as they are in the middle of a election cycle. What? Great Britain's Conservative Party expressed interest in forming partnerships with the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball with the ultimate goal of establishing franchises in the U.K. Really? We will support new sports in the U.K., in particular through greater links with U.S. national leagues, uh, with the ultimate ambition of new franchises being based here. This was on an 84-page manifesto. Wow. NFL has played regular seasons there since 07. The NBA plays preseason games, but baseball does not play any games in England as of yet. Interesting. But they're willing to have all these franchises in Europe or in England. So I don't know if that's conceivable or logistically possible. But Boy, if you got a league over there, though, you could have a world football 
championship game. Well, they tried the World League of Football. No one showed up. Yeah. So they ended it. I wonder if it's a different time. Hmm. And then there's the whole concept of road trips. You're on oh. the west coast of the United States, and you've got to travel to London to play? Yeah, no, Ooh. I think they keep the NFL the NFL. Then they have an EFL, European Football League, and then eventually they'll have a WFL, World Football League Championship game. <laughs> that would be cool. That would be great. That's what we need. Plus, just think of the number of concussions we could have then. Oh, yeah, just through the roof. On every continent, people with concussions. Anyway, that'd be cool. You know, I love football. The more, the merrier. Hey, uh, here's uh, the next uh, little topic we're going to be jumping into, my friends. Depression. Do you know somebody that is depressed? The research shows it's anywhere from 10 to 20 percent of the population might uh, be suffering. 20 percent might be suffering from depression. Um, kind of a chronic type of depression. The question is, though, how do you treat it? It seems like in the news you hear all of these different drugs that are treatments for depression, major depression. And we always think, yeah, you just need chemistry. Your body needs chemistry. I've even told people that your body just needs chemistry. Well, maybe that's not what the actual scientific data shows. Maybe that's just what you're being told through the media. So we're going to get into a a pretty intense discussion about the real causes behind depression and if medication is the first go-to product you should be seeking out or should you get more therapy? What should you do? We'll be talking to two doctors who have researched it, written papers on it, giving us their insight. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be talking depression and solutions to counter it up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, did you know that in 2005, Zoloft, an antidepressant drug, the cells were $3.3 billion. And according to an article in the New York Times, one in 10 Americans takes an antidepressant medication um, every day. You've seen the commercials that tell you that depression can be caused by a chemical imbalance. In fact, you've heard that term used a lot. And when you think about uh, the German Airlines airplane that went down, we heard a lot about depression and severe depression and chemical imbalance. A lot of these terms were thrown around. And um, when we talk about it, you know, they always seem to be connected to the, the chemical serotonin, right? You remember the word serotonin. Think about that because we're going to be talking about it a lot today. Now, what if I told you that these commercials were actually not quite accurate? Joining us are the co-authors of a study entitled The Media and the Chemical Imbalance Theory of Depression. Dr. Jonathan Leo and Dr. Jennifer, or Jeffrey Lacasse published this study, which shows that although the scientific world knows that a serotonin imbalance isn't proven to be the cause of depression, the general media has been slow to get this message out to the masses. So we appreciate uh, both of you again, Dr. Jonathan Leo and Jeffrey Lacasse. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. It, uh, are, are, is that you? Is that Jonathan? Are you this both is, there? This is Jonathan Leo. Geo, uh, Jeffrey, are you there? I'm here. Nice okay, to be here. Great. Just wanted to make sure we had both of you on the line. Now, you hear it all the time thrown out there. This idea of depression is directly linked, caused by a lack of chemistry. 
in the brain. So, Jonathan, why don't, why don't you talk to us a little bit about that? Is how, how does the scientific data differ from what we're all hearing about depression? Well, several years ago, Jeff and I published a a paper in PLOS Medicine where we compared the portrayal of the the chemical imbalance theory, particularly serotonin, um, how the press portrayed it or or how it was portrayed in the scientific publications compared to how the media portrayed it or the the advertisements. And the advertisements really present a very simplistic view of depression. The idea mainly that the, the depression is caused, and the key word is caused here, yeah. by a chemical imbalance. Um, and really, psychiatrists in their own writings are much more circumspect about that, when they, especially when they talk to each other. Really? So, so when, when doctors, when psychiatrists, doctors of the brain talk to each other about depression, they're not necessarily saying there's a, it's a cause-effect to serotonin. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, in their um, scientific publications, they're much more circumspect about okay. it than the, than the advertisements. Okay, and, and let me just let me get your credentials in here because Jonathan Leo, um, that was just talking, is a professor of neuroanatomy at Lincoln Memorial University in Harrogate, Tennessee, and uh, Jeffrey Lacasse is a PhD and assistant professor at Florida State University. And and Jeffrey, your your research is on consumer advertisements of these psychiatric medicines. So is, is the data – is the scientific data that the, that the scientists are using, the psychiatrists are using, not jiving with what the media is teaching and saying? Well, that's the primary finding from the paper you mentioned in our introduction is that the conversation that scientists have among themselves is very different than what the general public – has been told. But just to add a layer to this, I mean, everyone remembers the advertisements for Zoloft with the little bouncing, the miserable ovoid creature that's yeah. so unhappy until he, you know, and the serotonin reuptake inhibitor fixes it and all that. One thing John and I have noticed is since about 2006 or 7, you don't see advertisements like that anymore. I mean, these advertisements, even though people may be told this in psychiatrists' office these days, assuming that happens, we actually don't see that even claimed by the drug companies any longer, which we think is probably a reflection of they the realization know. that the scientific data doesn't allow you to say this Interesting. because it's very theoretical. Yeah, and I mean that would set them up for major lawsuits eventually. Well, well they did run the ads from, let's say, 98 to 2006, but yeah. they came to a screeching halt, which we're still a little puzzled by because it was a very effective marketing technique. So at this point... It's not happening in the advertisement so much, but we do still hear that it happens in clinical interactions sometimes, and we're concerned about the fact that the psychiatric textbooks tell a different story than what, than what clients are often told. Hmm. It seems like, and in in either one, I guess maybe Jonathan answer this, um, I have a lot of family members that are medical doctors. They have drug reps that are visiting them regularly. A lot of their education about the drugs are coming from pharmaceutical representatives that are working for pharmaceutical companies, bringing lunches in to educate these doctors. So are they are the, are the psychiatrists, you know, that are maybe 20 years out of college um, and, and their medical training, are they are they being informed fully? Wow. OK, this is the this is you're opening a can of worms here. And, <laughs> and it's <laughs> it's a huge problem. All the the advertising that doctors are exposed to. However, I, I do think it's getting a lot better. Um, the younger generation coming out of med school is much more skeptical about these advertisements. 
Um, and and they, they see these conflicts of interest. They know they're out there. Um, and I think they're much more aware yeah. of it. Yeah. Um, I've, I've well, even seen my own clients that are very skeptical. I mean, I can see, and, and I really want to talk about it uh, in a couple minutes, the, what really we should be doing with depression. Because you'll see depression in somebody. It's obvious they're feeling it. And yet, if I send them to a psychiatrist or to many, many, many counselors, um, a lot of them will just recommend medicine. Yeah, that's a you know that's a it's a huge problem how quickly the trigger is pulled on medication. Medication yeah. has a role, but if the trigger is pulled, we're pretty trigger trigger happy as a society, especially psychiatrists, who are generally applied pharmacologists. That's what they do. Mm. It makes perfect sense that they would medicate people um, for sure. And, and one of the yeah, go ahead. One of the areas that, that Jeff and I are very interested in is informed consent and what actually patients are told about these issues. Um, and there's an interesting story about after our study was published, we had a lot of the media people call us and say, wow, you guys are really attacking this you know, sacred theory of mm-hmm. neurology or psychiatry. And we tried to say, you know, this is not really us attacking the theory. <laughs> what we're trying to show is that psychiatrists amongst themselves don't really accept this. And we said, you know, if you don't believe us, call NIMH, call um, the FDA, call the APA. Um, and one of those reporters actually contacted someone at the F- uh, a head of pediatric psychopharmacology at the FDA who said, this is really just a metaphor. Um, and the problem for us is when patients are told about a serotonin theory, do they really understand that this is a metaphor? Interesting. Okay, so teach us the theory uh, Jeffrey, do you want to teach us the theory? What What is the theory of depression and serotonin? Well, John's the neuroanatomist, so I actually let him handle that. Okay, Jonathan, hit that. Well, the, the theory is, and it goes back several decades, that um, that depression is due to low serotonin. That That's the, the very short version oh, yeah. of the theory. Um, and it's kind of turned into this, you know, out of the blue, someone's walking down the street, and all of a sudden um, they're low on serotonin, that, and they become depressed. Um and the, the theory just hasn't really stood the test of time. Hmm. I mean, that's what I hear. Now, I'm not a psychologist. I, I'm more of just a coach that coaches skills and tools. But um, the, the, I hear the theory all the time. Yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of like you're low, you're low on oil. Exactly. You, you just right. need to go, you know, to minute yeah, lube. And, right. right. So, yeah. But the theory doesn't bear out. It's a metaphor. It's a, it's a concept. To, but – so what else is it? So so depression then is probably more complicated than one chemical that's too low. Yes, it's very well, it's absolutely It's absolutely very complicated, and definitely our biology is affected by our environment, our genetics, our personality, our social experience. But as a social worker, what I'm interested in largely is the social determinants of depression, things like social isolation, mm. um, things like lack yeah. of exercise. No, exactly. There's a lot of things that aren't medical. So one of the fundamental problems here is a common interaction where a general practitioner in five minutes decides someone has depression and they have been educated by the drug companies to believe that the pill is the solution when there's a lot of things like coaching, like therapy, yeah. like yeah. self-help. They can be very effective actually with far less risk. Right. Well, we, we already know if you just if you exercise a little more, you will increase serotonin levels, won't you, temporarily? Well, it causes neurogenesis, and it's, yeah. it's good for not just your body, but your brain. And there's some pretty rigorous studies showing that exercise can be effective for mild to moderate depression over in the United Kingdom. That's one of the first-line treatments at this point. And, and two, I've heard, and maybe it's just more with anxiety, but it seems like anxiety and depression might fall in the same realm here. Um, 
but and you got you can tell me but is uh it seems like too a lot of times they're saying what you need is you need, yeah take the pharmacology solution but then you you also need therapy so we're almost hitting we're hitting it with two things anyway well and and unfortunately that a lot of times the pharmacological solution over outweighs the the therapy yeah yeah oh yeah exactly i've got my pills right. and then they never right. go to therapy again right right Oh, man. Well, and, and the problem with uh, the purpose of the chemical imbalance narrative, this is probably one of our fundamental points, is that that's a story that's used to encourage people to take medication. Hmm. I mean, there are some therapists, but probably very few, that will say, look, this psychotherapy is going to have an impact on your brain. But actually, there's neuroscience around that. Yeah. Uh, there's some very powerful non-medication interventions yeah. that can be very helpful to having a healthy body and mind. That's know? right. And, and going forward, right? So, I mean, because you're, you're going to adapt skills, you're going to have habits, you're going to create change, movement. I mean, there's a lot of things that... But meanwhile, you're still going to be on meds if you think if you buy into the metaphor or the narrative about the, the uh, serotonin theory. I right. need the so, well, as far as learning, I mean, that's something of deep concern to me because I've done some studies of, for instance, bereaved uh, mothers, mothers that have lost children, mm. and some of, some of them were medicated fairly quickly. Um, and that's a life experience that's terrible and tragic, and you would expect a person yeah. to have yeah. to struggle with it, overcome it. Spirituality has a role. Mm-hmm. Psychotherapy has a role. Uh, but instead, I have, a, I have some data showing that a substantial minority of women were medicated within a couple of weeks of losing uh, a baby. So that's yeah. how far out of control yeah. uh, it is these days. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about the medicalization of depression. It, it, it's true. Right. And, it, and it seems like, too, and then we, we also have the term situational depression. So, I mean, it's then all of a sudden, oh, yeah, so there's just some depressions that are just for a time, and then we could just medicate you for a time. But then it almost seems like once we get hooked on the meds, it, it might potentially cause other problems. So if we've got to get the theories right. Let's take a break, gentlemen. Again, we're talking to uh, Dr. Leo and Dr. Lacasse, two um, authors of an article called The Media and Chemical Imbalance Theory of Depression. Again, depression's a real thing. We're not saying it's not real. We just need to understand it and understand that uh, maybe everybody's not getting the real live information, the data that's coming that's out there at the at uh, the big researching, you know, structures of our our universities, our National Institute of Mental Health. They have data that's not necessarily getting out there. It's just maybe not being taught by some of those that that might want, uh, you know, pharmaceuticals out there. We'll take a break, my friends. More with uh, our two great guests on the topic of depression after this break. To the Matt Townsend Show. You know, again, it's you don't want to upset what some would believe are sacred cows, right? So the medical profession, sometimes you don't want to shake that crazy tree. You don't want to shake the therapy world. And that's not my intention here. But I, I want to talk about depression because we hear it all the time. In fact, we just heard it all through the news about an airline pilot that basically flew an airplane into a mountain, allegedly, because he had severe, severe depression or some other, you know, mental disorder, mental health issue. 
Meanwhile, we also keep hearing ideas, stories. We're hearing terms like theories, metaphors, narratives about what causes depression. And one of those narratives is a, th- is a theory of serotonin, that you're just low in serotonin chemistry. And because of that, you feel this depression. Joining me are Dr. Jonathan Leo and Dr. Jeffrey R. Lacasse. Uh, they wrote an article called The Media and the Chemical Imbalance Theory of Depression. And they're two gentlemen that have – they're researching this. They're not just trying to create a name by just taking everybody on. In fact, they're very respectful. But what they are J- – Jonathan Leo is a professor of neuroanatomy at Lincoln Memorial University in Harrogate, Tennessee. He's published numerous articles about mental health covering topics – you know, such as genetic basis of schizophrenia, serotonin theory, pediatric trials of SSRIs. Also joining us are Jeffrey R. Lacasse. He's an assistant professor at Florida State University, and he's published a lot of research on consumer advertisements of psychiatric medications, psychiatric treatment of vulnerable populations, and critical thinking and mental health. Two, you know, sober thinking, careful thinking researchers who say the data, the data in the research is different than maybe what you're hearing in your doctor's office about depression, in your therapist's office about depression. So I wanted to get them to set the record straight. Dr. Jonathan Leo, Dr. Jeffrey Lacasse, welcome back to the program. Thanks. Thank you. Teach us, uh, teach us more about what, what else is the research saying? Now, again, the NIMH, the FDA, these organizations, and the research that's just general, it's, it's out there for all of um, psychiatrists to go find. What else, what, what, are, what are the real issues dealing with depression that maybe we're not hearing about? Well, there's a lot we could talk about, but in terms of serotonin theory, just to revisit that briefly, John and I have looked deeply into the history of the idea. We've written a few papers on this. And the narrative we're seeing now is that we used to think it was a serotonin imbalance, meaning the psychiatric profession, the medical establishment, but we've recently discovered that's not the case. And we all want to trust our medical authorities, so it has some resonance. But we, what we've noticed is that you know there were articles in the 70s and 80s casting doubt on the theory, and there's a psychiatrist named, Dave, Dave, a psychiatrist named David Healy, who was in, in 1987 or 88, as Prozac comes to market, writes a very long article saying, here come the SSRIs, and watch out, because they're going to be promoting serotonin theory, even though it's not hmm. known to be true. So that, that's the new narrative. I, mean, I think the bottom line here is that, that clinicians need to be humble. If you look up in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the cause of depression is unknown. Um, there's all kinds of medical conditions proper that are, the cause is unknown, and people get told that. So here we have this narrative... Huh partially to encourage medication, but just a humble approach of saying we ultimately do not know might be the most appropriate thing. And and Jeff and I clearly believe that depression is a very real condition. I mean, we would never deny that. Um, But however, I think the serotonin theory, the way it's portrayed in the companies, presents a very simplistic picture of this, way too simplistic. And in a cartoon character. Um, And and so... I guess that's it. In fact, it's really an interesting, very telling thing. It's probably something you, Jeffrey, have really hit on is this idea of it's just it's become the best description, the best narrative. So whoever makes the best narrative seems to win the argument because what could be easier than just saying, yeah, your serotonin level's low. And if we could just pump that up a bit, you'll feel great. 
It, it's a very easy well, soundbite. Yeah, yes. soundbite. But what we're, and what we're hearing now, which we're kind of wrestling with how to address this maybe in publications, is uh, establishment psychiatrists claiming that no client actually gets told that they have low serotonin. That that's known to be a very outdated theory, and very prominent psychiatrists have actually come out and said no well-informed psychiatrist tells anybody that. Right. That conflicts with what we hear from our friends, our family, our sure. students, and you know emails we get. And the media and that has to be kind of yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, so just just tell us what what are some of these? And I don't want to, it's not about like busting up names and labels, but like is Prozac? Is that would that be a drug you take for depression? Yes. Uh, well, Zoloft, Lexapro, yeah. Seraphim. I, I mean, th- these are drugs that are really well sold and, you know, have issues when you take them. So if we're taking too many of them that we didn't need and we're drinking alcohol, that could cause problems with some of them. Uh, sexual health and your ability to, you know, to to be intimate with your partner. I have a lot of couples that come in and because one partner is on some of these meds, they're unable to be intimate with their partner, which causes a whole slew of other problems and depression. Right. Sure. Well, well the, the question what, is not the question is kind of like where do the medications belong in that in the treatment hierarchy? Yeah. At what point do you say, "Okay, it's time for medication." Let's try this. Let's one try of this. Primary con- you know, when people rush towards that and uh, there's an awful lot of other things that can be caught can be trialed first. And if you think about it, if you're going with a sprained ankle, they don't prescribe Vicodin in a surgery. <laughs> That's you right. go through physical therapy, you go for watchful waiting. And so just a little bit more of a cautious approach to medication is, I think, one of the things John and I would recommend. Mm. Uh, your thoughts, John? Well, yeah. And the other thing that goes along with our, this discussion is the efficacy of the medications. And there's been a whole group of, uh, a whole body of research over the past several years really pointing out that the perceived efficacy of these medications is much higher than, than the actual Reality. efficacy. Um, and there's a well-known study. It was done by Irving Kirsch, who used the Freedom of Information Act to get access to all the drug company study trials of these medications. And when you pool all this data, the, the, the medications are barely beat placebo. Oh, man. And these were studies done by the drug companies. I mean, if these studies were done, <laughs> if anything, to put the medications in the best light possible. Well, and, and so, so just connect exercise to it would have the same or better effect. Right. Well, there have been mean, several studies. But yeah. yeah. Or I mean, or anything, or just training, or a workshop, or, I mean, yeah. Wow. Well, in the, United, in the United Kingdom, they're moving towards, it's an implementation issue, but they're moving towards get from mild to moderate depression, exercise first, and uh, cognitive behavioral therapy next, and then let's talk about medications. Hmm. That simple change would represent a tremendous improvement, and it doesn't deny the reality of depression and the impact it can have on people's lives. It just asks psychiatrists to follow the same kind of hierarchy that doctors and many other medical specialties already follow. Why, why is, do you sense, why is Europe, why is the UK ahead on this than the United States? I think the direct-to-consumer advertising, keep in mind those ads, and we've all seen a million of them at this point, don't exist in those other countries. Okay. I don't know what yeah. proportion of the difference it is, but it's an issue. Um, there's also socialized medicine and lots of other differences. Yeah, Because these, these advertisements, they put doctors in a bind too, because patients will see these ads, they'll maybe take a short little five-question quiz, you know, attached to it on the Internet, and they come into their doctor and they say, I have this condition and I need this medication. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. and the doctor's in a bind, too, because there's a, there can be an attitude of, you know, if I can't get it from you, I can go down the street to the next doctor. That's true. Well, yeah. And so if any of you are suffering mild to severe depression, go talk to your doctor and ask him about. So, so now they're actually right. they're doing marketing to drive the, uh, you know, the people in to start asking for it, pushing for it. Yeah. And again, if it's I have a five right. minute appointment with you or a 15 minute appointment, the, the quicker I can get this diagnosed and get you out, the better. Right, and these ads are banned in the rest of the world mm. to, for consumers. Because it also seems like if we were going to go with the myth of serotonin you know, uh, levels, um, it seems like that every time somebody came in with depression in my office, I would do a, like a blood test. Is there a blood test for serotonin levels? No, there's, there's no blood test. There's no blood test. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Or anything I, like but that. It seems like if the theory was true, we'd have a blood test. The blood test would tell us, oh, yeah, your levels are way out of whack. Let's right. get you some serotonin. People often, I mean, you also often hear the comparison to a diabetic needs insulin, but it's really nothing like that. Mm-mm. Is there a tie? I always hear that depression and anxiety are ugly stepsisters or whatever. Um, that's what I hear in my world. Uh, to talk about, is there a connection to anxiety with the same diagnosis or treatment? Or No, absolutely. I teach psychopathology. I teach diagnosis to aspiring clinicians. And it's 70, 80% of people diagnosed with depression will also get labeled with you know, some kind of anxiety as well. It's kind of unusual to have just solely mm-hmm. one or the other. So we talk about, and we're not particularly good at accurate diagnoses, which is another problem. Right. I mean, you see two separate clinicians, they're going to agree at best, based on the data, 30, 40% of the time is the most recent study yeah. for something like depression and anxiety. Um, so that's definitely, definitely an issue. And so anything that would work for, be helpful for anxiety is, is likely to help someone with depression as hmm. well. Yeah. I see a lot of times, um, and I guess it's the benefit, having a doctorate in human development, is, I'm not going to go do typical psycho- psychotherapy, psychiatric evaluation. I will send them off to get that. But it makes it a little easier for me because then I just try to immediately get into other tools that can that can cause or create positive effects as well. I wonder um, – I've also in my work with psychiatrists, I've seen very few of them that ever end up taking anybody off of any of these meds permanently. So I found one in my area that is really good about you know situationally helping somebody kind of curb that emotional moment start processing it, but then they quickly send them out to get other help, and then they take them off the meds. Is, is, that, is that a normal thing? What's, what does the industry do as a whole about once they put somebody on these meds? Well, antidepressants, by definition, are really attended for long-term use. The American Psychiatric Association guidelines will say at least 6 to 12 months, and other guidelines yeah. say something slightly different. That's my concern when someone has a recent relationship breakup, an unemployment stress, a death in the family, life situations they would elicit a depressive response. It may be a long-term solution to a short-term problem, and that's where you get in these binds. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. It's, it's a big deal. And, and yet, um, what's the pushback like for you two? I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure you must, you know, at some of these uh, programs you go to, some of the association meetings you must go to to present your, your work, a lot of those are promoted probably by pharmaceutical companies. How, do, how are you treated? Well, uh, John, I'll, I'll let you take that in a sec, but real quickly, uh, we published an article in 2005 in Post Medicine, which Dr. Leo mentioned, and uh, we actually, I'm not aware, or have no knowledge of ever receiving any disagreement with the points we've made in the hmm. peer-reviewed literature. We've been treated 
we actually interacted with Pfizer a little bit, and they were really respectful. Um, so we haven't had any problems in that regard. Yeah. Um, how about you, John? Well, in most, we have not really gotten any negative reaction. Most psychiatrists have come out and agreed with us. And shortly after the paper was published, uh, the head editor of one of the major psychiatric trade journals came out and said that psychiatrists haven't accepted this theory for a long, long time. Interesting. Um, you know, it's again, we're talking with Dr. Jonathan Leo and Dr. Jeffrey Lacasse. Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Lacasse is an assistant professor at Florida State University. Jo- Dr. Jonathan Leo is a professor of neuroanatomy at Lincoln Memorial University. Um, it's, I guess, too, it's, it, some of this is still just the disconnect between the patient the, and the doctor. It seems like everybody knows or they're okay with your research. They get it. They all agree. I guess it's just how it's being played out in the media. And not just the media, but the Internet's actually tremendously helpful because now you have a situation where someone just Googles serotonin and depression, they're going to see a lot of dissenting views and mm-hmm. see the debate and, and see that it's not a well-accepted theory. I actually worked with a community psychologist in uh, Utah named uh, Jacob Hess and uh, worked with him creating a course. It's, it's, it's called allofwife.org is huh. the website. Yeah, all... it's, a, it's a website that uh, kind of goes with the kind of stuff we're talking about that many things in life could be helpful, and it presents all the brain research and talks about some of these topics. So many of your listeners may be interested you in bet. that. It's a resource to get a, a more informed view, I think. Alloflife.org. And Jacob Hess. I've heard of Jacob. And um, it, it's, it, I, think, I think it's really powerful, and I appreciate that you're doing it because I've always had a little dissonance going on with this where I keep hearing these different stories, and yet um, a lot of my clients are like, oh, yeah, I'm being treated for that. And, I'm, and I keep thinking, well, do you have any coping skills? Have you learned breathing skills? Have you learned – do you have an exercise habit? And they have the meds on board, have had them on board for years, but they don't have any other tool set. So I think it's powerful what you guys are doing. Um, just, I guess, if you were going to give us one last thought, we have about a minute. I'd love to hear from both of you. What, what should we be doing just as the average consumer who's going through depression? Where should we begin? How should we go about getting the help we need? Uh, Dr. Leo. Well, I would say one is to be skeptical of the advertisements. Um, And as Jeff was saying, I would research the condition online. There's lots of resources available online. Um, And then really sit down, find a doctor who who you are comfortable with and sit down and talk about these issues. Um, You know, are these drugs, are they really going to be that effective in the long run? Do you really think that depression is caused by a chemical imbalance? Have you really explored what's going on in your life? Um, Those are the steps I would look at. Mm, Good stuff. And And, Dr. Lucas? Yeah, I would say based on how theoretical much of this is, I just wouldn't recommend that people take the decision to start a psychiatric medication lightly. They think of it as a very serious decision it is. Hmm. I I agree. And I think in the end, slow is slow and steady, right? I mean, if you need it, you'll get there eventually. But check everything else off the list. Right. Yeah, that's the bottom line, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Jonathan Leo, Dr. Jeffrey R. Lacasse, we appreciate you. Keep up the great work. Keep uh, keep writing. And any you know any new information, let us know. We'd love to get you back on to to continue this discussion, folks. There's no hurry to get on the meds. There's there's hurry to get relief. Totally, I get that. And so uh, start start your search and go with the people you trust. And if you're feeling a little bit weird about it, just keep researching. I promise you'll find somebody along the ra- uh, along the road. We'll take a break, my friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show, trying to help you find the good in the world, even if you got depression. We'll be right back right here on BYU Radio. 
Welcome back, my friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, so every day I get to sit down, uh, spend some time with couples, a lot of individuals and uh, as well that they're just down. They're out. Depression is obviously uh, impacting them as well. So hearing that research from Dr. Jonathan Leo and Dr. Jeffrey Lacasse, um, it's it makes sense, right? Life is not going to be fixed with a pill. It just doesn't happen that way. Think about that. What what has ever changed everything just because you had the pill of some kind of a pill doesn't change it. At some point, we've we got to recognize humans are highly complex beings. We have social factors that impact us, emotional factors that impact us. We have uh, history, environmental chemical. We have our ancestry. We have genetics, right? We have uh, our religions, our spiritual base, body, mind, spirit. We have all of these different things impacting us. And um, what's going to happen, you're going to go to the toolbox you're most familiar with, right? So if if you have a hammer, you're going to see everything as a nail, that basic theory. If you're a psychiatrist, you might want to go with, you know, there's going to need to be a chemical solution here. That's pretty much how they're going to handle it. Go to a therapist. They're going to work, you know, cognitive behavioral. They're going to work some form of a psychology that they've worked. I know people that are still, you know, working Freud. And um, again, it's powerful. Parts of certain ideas might help. Um if you're a coach, you're going to just do go to coaching. You're going to coach whatever skill sets you've been trained in, whatever tools you've been trained in. So the same, I think, is true with each of us. I think we would love to just trust an expert to just fix our problem. But in the end, it's still our problem. And so just as a little coaching advice for you, and I try to do this even with my own clients, I can only give them so many tools, but in the end, they have to do it. And I can pretty much guarantee that with certain skills and tools, for example, I can get you to communicate better, to solve problems, to build solutions with your partner. I can guarantee that we could teach you to do that. I can't guarantee that you'll do it. I can guarantee you'll we'll be able to figure out why you're struggling to do it. You'll have other tools But in the end, you have to figure out your code. Every one of us are on this earth. We've been given a body. Randomly, that body isn't – it's not perfect, right? I I once heard somebody say it takes about a trillion cell divisions to create a human being. Now, you know, to me it seems like it would be more than a trillion. One trillion divisions, foldings of your DNA over and over and over and over. And in my mind, if I did something one trillion times – about a third of the time it'd be done wrong, just how I work. So if your genetics are going to be folded over and over and over and over, out of all of those folds, my friends, just even randomly and genetically, you're going to have some pretty inherently obvious issues that will come into your life. You might have cancer eventually. You might have uh, depression. You might have high sensitivity. You might have all these different things, ADD, ADHD, you might have all these different iterations, variations. Your job is not to assume that the world all have an answer for that. You have to go figure out what are your variations and then you have to go start sorting through what are some possible solutions out there. And I wouldn't always assume the best solution is always in your neighborhood. 
I wouldn't assume it's always in your pharmacy. I wouldn't assume it's always everywhere. Um, but I would probably try to take a journey deeper inside to your spirit, start from your spirit, work your way out through your mind, through your body, through your family, your relationships, your environment, your culture, then work your way out. But start with your spirit. Your spirit could be your guide. And it doesn't have to be all spiritual. Okay, so you're saying I got to go to church. I'm not saying you got to go to church. But your your spirit is in tune with your body. Your spirit knows what's going on. And just start finding answers and just start following leads. And st- You may have had a friend that said, you really need to go visit this one person. I really think they can help you. And they've told you that 24 times and you haven't done it in 10 years. But your heart keeps remembering that conversation and that name and that person. Go see that person. Do you know how many times I've had people come in and say, I had a friend tell me I should have come in here five years ago. And then all of a sudden we go make a major breakthrough. And almost invariably, everyone I make a breakthrough with, I need to eventually let them go. And we let them go. And then they can go on and make their next breakthrough. It's never going to be about one person, folks. You're not going to find your peace from a pharmacist and you're not going to find your peace from your partner and you're not going to find your peace peace from your drugs and your job and everything else we try to hang and find our peace. You're going to find your peace, folks, from your principles, from your promptings that you receive, and from, from really having the character to do what you need to do. If you're depressed, start the journey, get in your spirit, ask your spirit, what's the most important thing I can do right now to deal with my depression? And just go do that. Go start studying that. Don't just wait for the pills. They don't always work. We'll take a break. Next hour, more ideas, more tools to help you find the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. The show where we help uh, give you the tools to live longer, love stronger, and lead. Just the life you want to lead. A healthier, focused, loving, caring life. Having some fun along the way, right? Life shouldn't just be a drag. Welcome to the program. We're going to give you some tools today to do that. Uh, one of the topics we're going to get into, I am a, I, uh, I'm trying to use the program to help heal myself. Um, one of the problems I have is bedtime procrastination. I know I should go to bed at 9 o'clock now to get up for the early show. Still, last night, midnight. Wouldn't be bad if I wasn't getting up four and a half hours later. But there's a reason. Procrastination. A lot of us procrastinate going to bed. In bed at 10. About 15 minutes of reading about ISIS. I have, a, I have a book. Yeah. And... Yeah, so, and then I pass out. So you gently well, go to then bed. Well, then I played words with friends, checked out Instagram, looked at Twitter, and went to bed. I know. See, so I, if I did that, I would turn my brain on, and I would be up. I would be in for two more hours. So if I go to bed, I can't turn – I couldn't read ISIS because I don't want to read about a beheading right before I go lay myself down it's to not sleep. beheading. They're talking about social media and how yeah. terrorist organizations are fighting over Okay, it. let's just clarify that. I would not want to go to bed <laughs> learning about how social no, no. institutes <laughs> – I mean, yeah, social media is used by terrorists. Terrorists, yeah. But if I turn my brain on, it's game over and I'm up. 
So I have to go to bed and lit- I, I have to kind of go when I'm tired. About 9.30, my body's like, hey, you're tired. Your eyes are falling. You're going to sleep. Your eyes are closing. Do you take a nap in the afternoon? No. Okay. Actually, I do. I, I take a nap while I'm driving home because from here. Because this schedule is kind of new for you. Yeah. I've been doing this for about 10 years. Oh, yeah. At first, it was kind of tough for me. Yeah. But then I found out that if I go to bed exhausted, I just pass out. Now, yeah. to be healthy when you go to sleep, they say you need to be able to take about 10 minutes to drift off to sleep, uh-huh. whereas it was about three minutes I was gone, which just shows that you're exhausted yeah. and this is unhealthy. But that's how I tried to live, and it was effective because I got sleep. See, I just end up procrastinating, and I, yeah. and I also have kids running around, so I'll talk to them, and I love that part. This is when my kids come to life. Woo! They're all alive. We're talking. But it's like my bedtime. And literally, I feel like my wife needs to tuck me in and, okay, good night. There you go. Okay. Do you need some warm milk? Anyway, Jeffrey Davis is going to be joining us. Why we tend to succumb to bedtime procrastination. They've also found that maybe those that are a little more creative tend to keep maybe their brain on a little bit longer. So that creative brain, once you turn it on, it's just going to keep creating havoc for you. So uh, we'll be getting into that. If you are a procrastinator, this is the show for you. Also, um, we just uh, are going to be talking to BYU Sports Nation at, uh, near the end of the show. We always like to find out what's going to be coming up next hour with those two lugs. But uh, first, let's get to a few of the headlines. So the National Park Service expecting a new appro- to be approved rather quickly here. Spikes for the top of the White House fence. Yeah, that'll help. As people are breaching security. That'll get Um, the gyrocopter not to land (laughs) near a monument. They will remain on the current fence, and they're going to replace the fence around the White House because apparently it's not sufficient enough. So they'll put Mm. spikes on it, and they're waiting for permission to go ahead and get that approved. So, Do you know that um, I don't want to brag, but I'm a pretty big deal. I'm kind of a big deal. Do you have Uh, spikes around your house? No, but I stuck my hand through the White House fence. Yes. And uh, President Clinton's dog, a brown Labrador, licked my hand. Yes. And I thought, that's the same hand. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the same tongue tongue that's licked President Clinton's hand. Right. And then... Did you, did you wash your hand later? I got kind of grossed out. I mean, that's it's just it's dog, a dog slime, and it's, I'm sure it licked a lot of things on that. I'm trying, yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's not so I only, thought, no. So I thought, Ugh. but uh, yeah, if I can stick my hand through, but the dog walker was there, the the royal oh. dog walker, the royal. They call him the royal dog. Walker. Okay, he came from England. Okay, it's yeah. a profession. Mm-hmm. I understand. He used to walk the dog. A new way. study published in Psychology Science suggests that Tylenol and other over-the-counter acetaminophen products yeah. could dull emotional sensitivity. Now, this is your wheelhouse, you mm-hmm. could say, the emotional sensitivity yeah. spectrum is, of this life. This is completely out of your wheelhouse. Right. I have no emotional sensitivity. Do you find this statement <laughs> to be true? Yes, because Um, When we feel emotional pain, we are feeling that pain in the exact same place in our brain where we feel other pain. So – and they've actually proven taking some Tylenol will dull the emotional pain. The study participants who took acetaminophen had less emotional reaction to both positive and negative photos, Mm -hmm. describing them as more neutral and less emotionally intense than the participants who took the placebo. Which is interesting, by the way, after our last discussion about depression and antidepressants, because depression is also an emotion, right? So 
it would be a fascinating study to see what would happen with Tylenol's numbers head to head with other antidepressants. They because, said the, the sample size was small, so more study yeah. is needed. But initially, well, they see some results there. Because with antidepressants, it, earlier they were saying it's about this, it's just a little bit better than placebo effect for some of the antidepressants anyway. Which, so this Tylenol is probably just a little bit better than placebo effect. My, Interesting. My wife and other people close to me feel that it doesn't matter. I would still be emotionally neutral. No, you would be. Across well, uh, some constantly. Well, some wouldn't say neutral. Some would say. Uh, a deficit, vacant, a vacant, abandoned a little shanty <laughs> of emotional dumb. I don't know. I just don't want to put myself out there. I know that's good. We understand. We understand. All we'll, right, we'll get you. We'll get you to start sharing your feelings. A Duke University research team has figured out a way to stop mice from developing dementia by adjusting the brain's immune system to stop the cells from attacking nutrients. Now it's interesting. This is interesting because I knew that a lot of mice had problems going blind. Because I've read about it a lot as a child. There was three blind mice, just lots of blind mice. But dementia, I didn't know they had. So researchers are now finding out that you can get rid of dementia in mice. Yes. Which I'm assuming they'll eventually bring to the rest of us. Well, we'll have to figure out how does to it, make that jump. Does it involve yes. Tylenol or acetaminophen? No. So what are they doing? They're adjusting nutrients in the brain. I could read all this, but I don't know if you know what it is. Oh, you, know what, you know what micro... Microalgia is? Oh, yeah. Microalgia? See? The yeah. sci- they found a way to stop immune cells known as whatever from breaking down an amino acid known as agrogyne. Uh, agrogyne. By blocking certain enzymes. So, you know, what was the science joke? stuff. James, what was that? What was the, what's our phrase we always say about uh, agri- agrogyne? <laughs> the great enzyme. Yeah. yeah. It's the greatest Of all enzyme. time. Yep. The important time. thing is they've made an advancement where we could someday be able to stop Dementia from beginning. Now, it's Seriously. not curing dementia. No, that's huge. In other news, yeah. and this one I felt more for you. I'm not sure why, but okay. it felt like something. Let's hear, let's hear. Packing on the pounds in middle age mm. appears to cut the risk of developing dementia rather than increasing it, according Packing to a scientific journal. Wow. James, take a note. That's huge. Take a note on this, that's James. That's huge. Um, what are you going to take the note on this time? Uh, I'm going to do it uh, in your favorite method. Oh, uh, in an airplane in the sky? With smoke? No, to an airplane. Skywriting? Sky. Is that okay. what you're saying? Skywriting. Okay. Okay, so here's the note. Okay. Um, do not pack on the pounds in middle age. Okay. Okay, so you're sending this to a sub, to a Russian sub mm-hmm. off of shore. Sweden. Um, don't pack on the pounds uh, because we want to not have issues with dementia later in life. Okay. Over and out. What did you say? Sign talent. It's packing on the pounds. Yeah, I'm, I'm saying I'm giving him a note not to pack on the pounds. Well, then he'll develop. He'll no. have a higher risk of developing dementia. No, Terry, the note is packing for me. on. I know, but it says packing on the pounds in middle age. Yeah, appears to cut the risk. Oh, cuts the risk. Yeah, so, so you're putting on weight. Oh, that's it, bad because I lost hurt, five no, pounds. In other hurt. words, you're going to be very prepared to. So you're saying I won't get dementia. I yes. just lost five pounds. You guys didn't even know it. Well, then you're increasing your rate. Do you apparently. know what I attribute it to? What? Exercise and drinking a lot of water. I think I'm actually going to the bathroom so much I've lost five pounds of fluids. You've lost five pounds of water weight. So let me finish. In a study of two million people, researchers found that compared with the average weighted people, underweight people had a 34% higher risk of developing dementia. So the underweight had a higher risk. 
while the very obese had a 29% lower risk of showing signs of the brain disease. It's interesting because this would then go to they're probably going to die of diabetes because we've talked about that on the show, but they're not going to have dementia. And maybe when you don't have enough weight on, then your body starts sending those other chemistries and fats maybe. and lipids and everything else they're to your brain. They're saying further research is needed, obviously, in all these things because this other tests that were similar yeah. showed the opposite. Yeah, yeah. Lower weight less chance of dementia, where this test, because it was so big with 2 million people, it showed higher weight, less chance of dementia. You know what's funny is don't you think you who studies ISIS every night before you go to bed? Um, what? Go ahead. You who studies ISIS yes. every night before you go to bed. Fascinating Don't stuff. you think that really we have a much greater chance of having a problem with dementia in our lives than we will of ever having a direct influence to me from ISIS. Absolutely. So we really need to be fighting dementia. Yeah, probably. Alzheimer's. I mean, it's horrible. It's horrible. I have it in my family and it is and we're, it's impacting us real time right now. And it's horrible, horrible thing. And yet all of our attention, all of our mind, all of our resources goes to everything else. And yet every one of us folks are going to be impacted by something as simple as dementia, as Alzheimer's or, you know, diabetes, anything like that. Depression, we should be fighting that as well. We need to bring it home, folks. We need to get to the real issues that might be impacting us a lot more. That's one of the things we try to do on this show. One we're going to start with after this next break, Jeffrey Davis is going to join us. He wrote a a great article on some research about procrastination and how sometimes as a creative person, you might uh, actually be creating some procrastination problems for yourself as you're going to bed. You just go procrastinate, create issues that you got to deal with. We'll talk to Jeffrey Davis. When we come back, this is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we all need sleep, don't we? But when it's time to call it nighty-night and go to bed, do you find other things to do? Other things that could probably wait till tomorrow, but for some reason you must just complete that task right now. Why do some entrepreneurs and creative people sacrifice their sleep to accomplish one more task? Are any of you cramming through business books that, you know, everyone else in the department's reading? You may as well read it as well. Jeffrey Davis joins us. He works with experts to discover how to create how the creative people flourish in times of challenge and change. Mr. Davis joins us to talk about why some people sleep less to get more done and how that could be hurting their work in the long run. Jeffrey Davis, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks so much. It's an honor. You bet. It's great to have you on the show. And uh, in your writings, I mean, you're not the researcher that did some of the work on on this, it was was it Laura Kraus? Was that the article you you focused on? Was from Laura? Yeah, Flora uh, Flora Kraus. Oh, Flora. She's, uh, she heads up or is part of the self regulation lab at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. Okay. And yeah, she had published a study. She and her team published a study on bedtime procrastination. It's a great phrase. So, and I, it is a great phrase. And do you do you does that resonate with you, Jeffrey? Are you one that will just keep putting things in line before you go to bed? 
Yeah, it does resonate with me, and it resonates uh, a lot with the people with whom I work, and it resonates a lot, I think, because of what I see is happening um, just in the early 21st century. But yes, I am, um, I am an entrepreneur and a writer and a consultant, as is my wife, hmm. and we both, despite our best intentions, uh, will try to get that last thing in, you know, after I put my little girl to bed, then I'm yeah. to go that last article read. No, and why Why do we do this uh, from what you figured out? Why don't we just go to bed? Why do we have to keep complicating it? Well, it's um, a part of why we do that, I think, is the perception that um, that we're out of time, uh, that we're extremely busy. Um, when I look at a couple of the larger trends that are happening, uh, I think Two contributing factors are the nature of our economy and our digital culture. So our economy right now, um, it's predicted in five years about 40% of the American workforce will be freelancers or temps. Oh, wow. 40% will be be fighting for their job every day. (laughs) (laughs) Will be fighting for their job. You couple that with the digital culture. And so, so if we just look at the, uh, that freelance economy, what does that mean? That means that we, we perceive that we want more freedom. We want more freedom from the nine to five job. And that means that we have to regulate more our own attention, our own actions, our own energy, because nobody's telling us what to do from nine to five. Right. right? Oh yeah. And you couple that with the rise of digital culture which is showing us, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we may not be making all of our travel plans. We might have somebody to do that for us. Yeah. Or we're in business for ourselves. We might be hiring out a lot of work. Now with all of the digital apps and, and so forth, we think that we should be able to do so much more for ourselves. For our minds are exponentially more taxed and more busy perhaps than they ever have been because of that rise of digital culture. So again, so what does that mean? That means that now we have to moderate our own minds and energy and time more than ever, coupled with the, the perception that we have to do more ourselves. Oh, so, wow. So you couple those two things together, and at the end of the day, we feel busy, we feel taxed, we... Uh, we know, we know that good sleep is good for us, mm-hmm. right? right? And yet when it comes down to those, those last couple of hours before bedtime, we have this tendency to try to cram things because of an inability to moderate our minds in those uh, evening hours. And again, this perception that, that we just need to get this last thing done and staying up a, an extra hour won't hurt. Mm. And then, yeah, then you get used to it. And I found the minute I turn my mind on, we were just talking about this. If I'm tired and I go to bed, and I'll fall right asleep. But if I if I turn my mind on, then my mind will start. It'll just start creating stuff, and uh, you know, then you're at it for two or three hours. That's right. So here's here's a really curious thing, uh, and this is why I found Floor's study so interesting too, in the context of self regulation. So. The ability to regulate the mind requires, to some extent, the frontal cortex to be awake and to be alert. So we have some degree of self-awareness of 
What are we doing at this moment? Why are we doing it? Right. But there's a whole network in our brain that neuroscientists generally call the default network. And the default network of the brain um, is usually activated when the frontal cortex is not so alert. So uh, the default network is activated when um, recent or past memories are coming up and we're sort of dwelling in the past like, oh, God, why did I say that to my colleague? Or, or, or we're creating stories in our minds about, say, why did that person not respond to my email? And then we get into this whole story-making, head-spinning thing. Mm. Do you ever do that? Oh, every day. Yeah, <laughs> every day of my life. And I had two clients yesterday. That's all we talked about was how they could quit that pattern. But that's their default network kicking in, I guess. That's exactly right. It's the default network kicking in. And so that network is most likely to be activated uh, when we're fatigued, when mm. we're tired, usually at the end of a day's work, right? Yeah. And, and the natural cycle in the evening. So those are times when we're most likely also to resort to sort of default numbing out activities. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so... Um, what what I recommend is when you're noticing that you're tired and fatigued and usually at the end of a day's work after dinner, rather than numbing out and rather than checking email or Facebook or, or just zoning out in front of the television or Netflix, um, is actually to pull back and reserve the 45 minutes to an hour before sleep for... Something, you know, that I, I would call like deliberate daydreaming where uh, maybe you're reading fiction, maybe you go out for an evening walk, hmm. um, maybe you just have a conversation with somebody you enjoy having a conversation with to, to really allow that, that default. Here's the other thing that's really I find very interesting, Matt, about the default network. It's also the place where the imagination can come alive. Mm. Um, where where productive daydreaming can come alive. So, for instance, that ability to imagine the next day in a positive way. Yeah, yeah. Right? Anticipate a positive tomorrow. Yeah, that might be a great uh, activity uh, instead of the worrying mm-hmm. mm-hmm. about what you just did. So, So that's one thing I would recommend is that 45 minutes or an hour before bedtime rather than resorting to the digital screen, which is going to stimulate, you do something, you know, sort of in that productive way to stimulate the imagination in a productive way. I love it. Uh, We're speaking with Jeffrey Davis, and he is a creativity consultant and the author of The Journey from the Center to the Page. Yoga Philosophies and Practices as Muse for Authentic Writing. If you've ever had to write a book, you realize how little control over your head you may have. And um, Jeffrey's kind of coaching us a little bit right now on this phenomenon that happens where we, we basically, you know, we just don't go to bed. We procrastinate at bedtime, bedtime procrastination. We're going to take a break, come back. And uh, talk more with Jeffrey Davis. Uh, I I really want to get into a story he tells about reading bedtime stories to his kids. And every one of us, I think, will relate to sometimes how we try to do it so quickly. Here's this magical moment you're not going to get. And I'll tell any of you now, as your kids get older, you're not going to be reading them bedtime stories. 
And yet we're in such a hurry to kind of get through it. And yet we still don't even go to bed. We just go do the next thing. Um, More here on Bedtime Procrastination, right here on the Matt Townsend Show after this break. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We are talking about bedtime procrastination. Do you tend to let bedtime slip away in exchange for, you know, completing other tasks that you haven't even thought about or that you've procrastinated on earlier and now you just feel like, ah, oh, here's an hour. I'll throw this in. Joining us is Jeffrey Davis, uh, who is a creative consultant, author of The Journey from the Center to the Page. Yoga Philosophies and Practices as Muse for Authentic Writing. And uh, he coaches people on uh, being creative and how to, um, I guess, channel their creativity in better ways. Jeffrey Davis, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. You bet. We found your article on uh, Psychology Today, so you're a blogger there as well. And um, one of the things I loved in your article was you, you mentioned you know bedtime stories with your kids. Yeah. And how you, you kind of... I think you're very typical, like the rest of us dads or moms even. You you maybe just tried to be really efficient and get it over with. <laughs> yeah. So I have a five-year-old and also a one-year-old. And with the five-year-old, I noticed, um, you know, if if she chose the books, she would she would choose the really long ones. And uh, and if she let me choose the books, I would choose the really short ones. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, I noticed... Uh, to um, how impatient I was getting in this particular, you know, possibly this most enchanting moment yeah. that you're going to have with your child that you're, you know, she's going to be rolling her eyes at me within a few years <laughs> and not think I'm so funny and brilliant anymore. That's and right. So, and so here I am trying to, you know, get the most efficient book. And, and one night um, she, she said, Papa, you're reading too fast. Why are you reading so fast? <laughs> you so, need to slow um, down, Dad. You need to read. You're not getting all the words and, and and catching it. Like I used to skip sentences or turn two pages at once. So my kids... And, and they'll that, call you on it, right? Yeah, because they will. They better than you. Isn't that funny? They're like, oh, no, Dad, you missed one. Or Or yeah. my kids would just be confused through the whole story because they never heard the entire plot line being developed. <laughs> right. So, um, so right, we do do that. I, I, by the way, I have a compromise with my little girl now. When she chooses a, a, a long story, uh, we read it in serial fashion. So mm. we'll put a arc in and say, we'll continue this the next night. Yeah. And we have that agreement. And that allows me to really enjoy the moment. Yeah. But what I noticed is, despite my years of trying to regulate this crazy mind, what I noticed was here was another opportunity for me to make the right decision. So why was I rushing through that most sacred moment? My mind was somewhere in the future, and I thought, I've, I've got to get that, I've got to finish this work for this client, or I've got to get this message out, or I really need to do this research. Now, all of that was, I was putting all of that on myself, and, you know, Fleur Krauss and her team defined bedtime procrastination 
as failing to go to bed at the intended time while no external circumstances prevent a person from doing so. So in this case, there was no outside source that was saying, Jeffrey, hurry up and rush through that bedtime. Right. It was all all you. Right? Yeah. So that's where we find ourselves quite often now in this more open uh, environment where we're more in charge of our time and attention, where we get to make the choices of where we're going to expend our energy and attention. So what do we do, Jeffrey, to get in that, to get more in this, in the now and kind of get over tomorrow even? Um, I mean, if I'm going to talk, think about tomorrow, think about kind of the ideal tomorrow, how I could create an ideal tomorrow um, versus a reactive tomorrow. But what else do I do to stay in the present with my family, but also as as I'm going to bed? Yeah, so... Uh, that's a really uh, perfect question because we, we talked earlier today about the default network. Yeah. And neuroscientists also have uh, studied the direct experience network. So in the past 10 years, uh, neuroscientists have been, have been looking at this other part of the brain. And it's a network. So it's, it's not just one region of the brain. It's a series of regions that light up together when we're simply observing the quality of the words on the page or the illustration on the bedtime, in the bedtime story, or just really pausing for a moment and looking at your child and just observing your child hmm. in the now is a way to awaken the direct experience network. So one thing you can do, and then I can talk about the implications of this, is when you practice... First of all, you just have to observe with a little compassion that you're in this reactive state. And yeah. this is what I've done with myself numerous times with my little girl. It's just like I observe I'm not here. I'm not here with my little girl. My mind is somewhere else, even though my body's here. So I have to observe that situation. And then I, I train myself, practice to just simply listen and look. So I'm, I'm just simply looking at her, looking at her face, listening to her voice, looking at the quality of light in the room. Yeah. So it's a practice that I call pause, gaze, praise. You just pause for a few seconds, and you can do this throughout the workday as well. You just pause for a few seconds and center your eyes softly on something in front of you, your coffee mug, uh, you know, something on your desk that's just normally ordinary that you look over. And let your eyes rest on it, take a couple of breaths, and just praise it. Like, just observe, you know, its simple beauty or or its functionality. Hmm. So what that does is it awakens what neuroscientists call the direct experience network. And what certain studies have shown is that people who practice something similar to what I just described become increasingly more aware of when their minds slip into the default network. Okay, yes, yeah, so you're, you're just becoming more aware. You can see when you're going in and out. Exactly, huh. exactly. Yeah. I mean, fundamentally, you know, there's a lot of talk uh, these days, again, about mindfulness right. and, and meditation and so forth. And I think that the greatest benefit from any kind of mindfulness practice, whatever it is, is just simply becoming more aware of how your mind's functioning or operating, or as you say, how you're just becoming more more reactive in the moment. Yeah. No, I love that. And I, I did it last night 
with I was making dinner for my son, and it just happened. But I because part of it was me thinking, man, I never even get this time with him, and now I've got this great time with him, and we're not talking. But I really I just paused, and I noticed I noticed I wasn't present with him, and then it almost just happened naturally. I just focused in on him, and then you have you almost have a change in feeling too. You're you get attuned and you get some compassion, and then I then I did praise him. I mean, it was. It was almost it's a natural thing you're teaching us. You're just you're just kind of giving us the equation. Pause, gaze, praise. Exactly. I love that you said it's just a natural thing. Exactly. It is so natural and we it is a that was a great uh, instance by the way. Yeah. You just Oh, it was it was super special and but I but I guess what you're pointing out too is we've got to notice it, don't we? We've got to notice when we're not in it to get in it. Completely. We completely just have to observe those wheels spinning yeah. and, uh, and, and just observe, as I say, with a little compassion that, okay, I'm not really here. And here's the other thing um, that I've started doing and, and recommending some of my clients do as well. It's just, you know, create, like change the habit, change the routine. So here's, here's now what I do with my five-year-old um, after the story's through. So we actually pause, and so rather than just like hurrying to the next part of bedtime, we actually pause after the bedtime story, and I don't even know if she knows that it's a habit that yeah. I create. But I'll just ask her, so so what was your highlight today? What was, you know, and it's just an opportunity yeah. to reflect on that day and for us to actually talk a little bit and connect. And so I, I've made that a habit as much for me to be present as much as just to really connect with. Them. I love that. No, and, and again, too, I think just having a little protocol, like asking the question, what was your favorite part of the day? Something like that that you know you can default to, but not so you get numb and, and miss it, but just so you can get into it. And then when they're talking, then pause with them, gaze, and find praise. I, uh, Jeffrey, I appreciate what you're teaching. And uh, again, I think everybody, we can learn so much more of this. And thank you again for being on the show with us. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be different tonight. Uh, I, by the time, I'm going to be exhausted, so I'll go right to bed. But uh, we, we appreciate you. Jeffrey Davis, again, go find him on Psychology Today and go check out his book, The Journey from the Center to the Page. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to take a break. Come right back with the guys from BYU Sports Nation up next right here on Sirius XM 143. Welcome back, friends. Mmm. Every breath you take. What better song could we use to introduce the wonderful gentleman from BYU Sports Nation, Spencer Linton and Jerem Jordan? Hello, gentlemen. That song's super creepy. <laughs> I'll you, be watching you like everywhere you go. Just so you know, guys, we are watching you. <laughs> I know, I know That's you are. That's the creepiness. We you watch every breath you take. You. Every move you make, Jerem, because you're there about five minutes before Spencer. <laughs> That's because Jerem doesn't put any makeup on. Well, he doesn't need makeup. That's true. He doesn't. He's a bit of perfection. <laughs> Why are you laughing, unless, Spencer? Unless my unless my superiors say, "Hey, you need to put on makeup." Because yeah. he just said, "You just said he's a bit of perfection." He is. I had a nickel, man. If I had yeah, a nickel for every time somebody said I'm a hey, bit question of a for you, man. Yes, sir. Are, are you pro? Are you more of a fan of Sting as a solo artist or of the Police? Oh boy, the Policia. 
La policía, me gusta la policía. I I like uh, I like I like Sting. So do I. I'm a Sting man. But if you had like you had one option, Just, you, could, you can take the police or you can take Sting. I take the police. Yeah, because you get the whole group. See, you know, I'm, I'm the same way. I'm a. You big always want to be on the police side. Yeah, always. That's something I learned. Uh, when I got pulled over about seven years ago. <laughs> about seven years ago. No. Always be on the be police careful. side. It's so bad. Hey, I got a question for you boys. Okay. Uh, first of all, uh, I don't know if you guys watch the Masters. Yes. It's the, a pretty big yes. sports deal. Huge. We watch it on the show. We follow it closely. No, you don't. Okay. We're lying. Um, okay. <laughs> I was like, well, you could. So the, you could have the, TV the, on in there. That's right. We watch everybody. The 21-year-old Masters champion, Jordan? Spieth. Spieth. Okay. I was going to say Spieth. Beef. beef. But then Terry's like, no, it's Spieth. He was saying it like Shakespeare says it. Spieth upon the cover to clearly follow the masters. But I know, here's, <laughs> here's the deal. But here, this is true. I, I, cause I, I do, I follow Bleacher Report. And, um, here's the deal. He talks to his golf ball. Like he yells at it. Did you notice that? He yells at it. Yeah. I see him yelling things. I didn't know he was having a specific conversation no, with the No, he's like, ball, bite, bite, though. bite, softly. And he, he'll yell what he wants the ball to do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Like, be good, be good. Come on, come on, be good, be good. This is the golf thing. This is yes. the golf thing. This is the golf thing. If a basketball was in the air longer, I would do the same thing to a basketball. Would you? Mm-hmm. Hit the wind. Get it, get it! Get I'll it! Oh, no, oh, no. So, I'll so, yell at the ball, yeah. So I'm wondering, do you, guys, do you guys do that when you're out golfing, when you're out just doing anything? And do you guys do that with each other, like, to try to influence each other to do what you want each other to do? <laughs> Not so, not so much to try and influence what we want each other okay. to do, but Good. when I play golf, there are a couple of go-to phrases for me. Yeah, <laughs> like if, if I want a ball to like, not all of which can be said. Beep, no, beep. Hey, I'm not, I've never, I've never been that guy. I've never Good. been a guy that curses. Seriously, are you the guy that picks the ball up and throws it out of the brush? Yeah, I, I, I just like to expend the anger in different areas. <laughs> what do you do? I snap clubs over my knee. No, have you really? And, no. No. That's crazy. You want to know what's funny? The I'm one time I lost my that. temper. I am the too. one time I lost my temper on a golf course and threw a club, it hit my bag, which was a stand bag, and broke <laughs> one of the stand legs on my bag. And oh, I was like, serves, serves me right. And the funny thing about that story, Spencer, is the bag was actually about 30 feet behind you. <laughs> <laughs> How you pulled that off? I, Amazing. I, I have no idea. <laughs> you yeah, broke. Have you ever yeah. been hit with a golf ball on the on the course? Thankfully, like full no. on, dude. Thankfully, I have. No. I've what? actually. I I used. I have been hit because I I don't want to brag, but I used to work at a golf course, a country club here in Salt Lake City, and I was uh, taking care of the driving range, and I would I'd get hit all the time. But I'm standing there watching a lady tee off, a very wealthy lady, and she hits the ball and a seagull kind of swoops down to get the ball and she hits the seagull in the head okay and it falls dead basically out of the sky isn't that a federal offense it's a, it's a state offense yeah and so she's like boy she called me over because i was the worker boy and she Fetch said me this pail <laughs> do something with that bird and i'm like i'm not touching that bird man you'll get so I ended up having to take the bird over, and it wasn't it wasn't dead. It needed it needed advanced life support. You gave okay. it to the blind kid on Dumb and Dumber. I did. Oh. 
Oh, Harry, so I took care of it. <laughs> Good little Petey. Good Petey. <laughs> um, so I, I took care of it. But anyway, I don't even want to get into that story because it was desecrating a state symbol, basically. You, you and I share something in common. I also worked at a country club. Mm. I worked at the Ogden Golf and Country but Club. But weren't you? You were the pool boy, I heard. I was not the pool boy. I was the head cart boy. Were you? You were in yeah. charge of the golf carts? Uh-huh. You got yep. to drive I, the carts? I set the members up, put their golf clubs on their carts, got them, you know, towels and Excellent. all this stuff. Yeah, we, 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 did it, we did it the right way. Did they know that you had a, a history of hitting golf clubs at golf bags <laughs> or golf balls at golf bags? That came after. That came okay. after my okay. mission, right. unfortunately. That's good because you would have lost that job. <laughs> yeah. Jeremy, are you a golfer? I like to golf. Okay. I like to go to the golfing. We've talked about how golfing's not technically a word. That's not a word. You can't. You can't golf. Oh, really? I'm not. You, I'm not yeah. good, but I like it. But you're, you're more of, uh, from just what we know on the show, you do. You're more of a square dancer. Mm, okay. <laughs> Isn't that what we talked about? <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Maybe at my uh, family reunion when I was 13 or something. Yeah. Well, we've got video. We're going to show that um, later. How do you dig these things up, dude? I have like 20 producers. That's true. How many producers do you have? Uh well we only need enough. One. We only need one Ben Bagley. The Ben Bagley. Yes. We have hey, a lot uh, of great students involved. You, are you guys true. still doing your show today? We are. Okay. Air, air day, man. What's coming up? What's coming up on your show? Hey, did you big hear about show. This the, is a big show. Yeah, huge show in terms of guests. Okay. Okay, D- head coach Dave Rose BYU basketball. Sweet. Okay, that's just the start. Mike Littlewood head baseball coach with some important news. Recruiting announcement. Yeah, with a recruiting Ooh. announcement. That may or may not deal with all America designation. Oh my he heavens! He signed a big timer. He's going to tell us about him. Holy okay. cow! So you that you, you got to listen in if you want to know who that yes. is. Okay. Yeah. And then there is a football scheduling uh, reaction because BYU is now scheduled to play a football game at eleven thirty p.m. Eastern on a Friday night. Holy cow! <laughs> there goes the ratings. <laughs> so really? we'll talk about you know pros and cons of that specifically and of non Saturday games in general. So there you go. That's a great show, boys. It always is. You know what? Just keep using that language just to kind of keep moving the golf ball. Hurry, hurry, go. Down, down, go, go, down. Sit, 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 sit. Yep. Yeah, I do that with my kid. It doesn't work. Boys, thanks. You're the best. I can hardly wait to watch the show today. Yeah, Dr. Matt. Stay love sweet, it. man. <laughs> you stay sweet. <laughs> thanks, guys. Every breath we take. <laughs> Rock on. Good stuff. Wow. They have a good show. They have a great show. You know, they know all the music. They get all the guests. Just they just people just flock to their show. They have Ben Bagley. Terry worked with Ben Bagley. I did. That's, they, what, that's they, one of the reasons you. That's why you had such a leg up because we're like, oh, he he's like Ben Bagley. Yeah, someone vouched for me. Yeah, that's a good crew. We got a better crew. Not to brag. But we got a better crew. James, any update on the, the wedding? You're still getting married? Still getting married. That's uh, still going to happen? Yes. Like uh, any news on anything that we need to worry about? Uh, no, just that it is uh, a day uh, closer of than it was yesterday. Okay. Terry well, that... doesn't seem too sure about it, though. We were talking about I'm still engaged and he looked like – Well, no, I'm looking like at something surprised. else. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know. I felt like you were no, it wasn't directed putting towards in you. question okay. – But he, he did – Terry did ask me like, have you met this woman? I mean, does she know? Does she know, James? I figure at this point if she hasn't backed out, that's her own fault. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> did I sell that well? Yeah, that's very negative. 
Yeah, we got to work. Yeah, it looks support guys. Yeah, just here to help. It <laughs> looks like um, the football game that Sports Nation was talking about. Yeah. Who are they playing? San Jose State oh, at San man. Jose. Are you kidding? So it's not like it's a big name, but they're in California for it, so they're not going to be trying to play a November. What is that date? It just moved on me. November sixth on a Friday night. At 9.30 at night, if they were playing in Provo, Utah, that'd be kind of cold. Yeah. And you're trying to get people to come out and sit in, sta- sit in the stadium and watch a football game. And- right. So, And who wouldn't want to go to San Jose? Come on. Right. I mean, do you know the way to San Jose? There's a freeway, I imagine. Do you know? They've, they've the paved half that state. So, um, I think it's, yeah, but 11.30, man. This is a Saturday night. Friday. Oh, Friday night. I was yeah. like, you know, you're going to get into the Sabbath. Not careful. There is some d- uh, discussion when they run over. Like, do they just stop the game because you can't play? But then they said no because the game originated on Saturday, so yeah. you have to finish. Yeah, spirit of the law. I'm like, yeah, so, there's a gray area. There's a total, total gray area. Um, really, uh, it's it's just you know when you think about when you think about the show and everything you got to do to put it together. I appreciate my team because we today, again, once again, nailed it. Great topics about depression and, you know, maybe we're not getting the full story. Maybe we're getting – I don't know if you know this, but depression is not just about a lack of serotonin. So if you're believing that story, you know, go listen to the podcast because we spent about 35, 40 minutes on it. Uh, we also just talked about procrastination. We also got into sexual harassment earlier today. We touched them all. Touch them all. Just great principles. And again, the goal of the show is to teach the skills that you need. So key learnings. James, what was your key learning today that you'll be able to now take in about 16 days into your wedding? Uh, stop wearing yoga pants. Yes. That's an excellent, excellent lesson. Men should stop wearing just yoga on pants. principle. No, but, see, but that that was just a trick that one man wore yoga oh. pants and then other men would look at him. He he stuck his head in the trunk like he was digging through his trunk and then men would just be gawking and leering and then he'd quickly turn around and surprise him. Hey, were you looking at me? And the guy's like, no, man, I'm sorry. I thought you were a woman. But they would do that to a woman? Yeah. I mean some men were like walking up to the woman yeah. and like saying stuff. They were going to go stand next to this woman yeah. and say something to Can't her. Can't do that, folks. Kind of – Personal space, back up. That was a key learning. That's a good, that's a great learning, and that'll be one that'll help you a long time in your marriage, James. How about you, Terry? Key learning. What's your big learning? I like the discussion with Jeffrey Davis about being in the moment, mm. not trying to rush through things. When I read stories to my kid, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll do the trick, or you you grab two pages and just keep reading, or yeah. or I stop reading the story and I just make up a story with the pictures, which yeah. is okay. That's huge. I'm not doing it to be creative. I'm doing it to get it over with so yeah. and get him to bed so I can la, do what la, I want la. to yeah. do. When so you got to be present. you got to stay present. Again, a moment I'm not going to give I love it. Kid. That's great advice. I think my big thing was about sexual harassment. you got to be respectful, and there's got to be consent, folks. If nobody's asking for you to comment on them, don't be commenting on them. Be respectful. Just major learnings there. Appreciate you listening to us. Again, go to podcast. If you if you liked uh, any of the segments, go share those. Send those out to your friends and family. We can't do the show without you. We'll be back tomorrow giving you more ideas, more tools to help find the good in the world. Until tomorrow, take care of yourself.